Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 957 with Eli Culp. What I'm trying to say is that we need chefs, young cooks, who are still obsessed in a good way for the right reasons. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Pop Menu, and restaurants have been hit hard over the past last years, which means restaurant owners and their staff have been working harder than ever, trying to meet the expectations of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity because it uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines, like... Can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. For a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro and they are launching their first time ever 60 day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef partner in High Street Hospitality Group and host of the Chef Radio Podcast, Eli Culp. My man, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm feeling amazing. Dude, I can- Welcome to Philly. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. I'm super excited uh, to, to dive into your story. Uh, you're truly an inspiration and uh, to, to, to share how you got to where you are today and what you've learned along the way. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? I would say uh, the one I like to go to, and it's simple, straightforward, but it's the truth. Hard work always, always, always pays off. Yeah, it does, man. There's no, there's nothing that you can substitute. And that's one of the reasons why one of my core values personally is just just show up. And I think that's half the battle is just showing up. Sometimes you don't want to show up, but even when you don't want to, you have to. And nine times out of 10, people get to where they are is because they they just, they're so continuous with showing up. Yeah. I'm not really smarter than anybody. I'm not really like, (laughs) I can relate with that. You know, like, (laughs) but I can, I'll outwork you. You know what I mean? Like, that's it. Which is funny because I think that's um, one of the, the most beautiful things about the restaurant industry. Like, anybody can make it. But at the same time, because we're such a, a group of hard ass workers, I think it's like a strength and a weakness within the industry because we're constantly trying oh, to yeah. work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It becomes a habit. Yeah. And before you know it, everyone's working and 100 it can, hours. And it a can week. be, you know. And we're all, we're all miserable. And it's just well, like, I tell you what. I tell you what. You can work 100 hours a week and feel 
on top of the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's a way to do it. There's a right way to do it. And if you're passionate about something and you are, it is in your blood, it's, it becomes you, it's an extension of you, creativity flowing. Like some weeks, creativity just flows and you're on it and you're on a high and you might have put in 100 hours a week and you feel great about it and you yeah. accomplish it. Then there's weeks you put 100 hours in and the dishwasher didn't show up and the line cook quit and walked out and you know everything went to shit uh, for the week and it feels like a 200 hours. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely peaks and valleys, you know, um, for sure. Where, I mean, it's just it's it's one of those things where I feel like we're making a shift away from it. We're we're collectively going, what are we doing to ourselves? Why are we doing this? Uh, I think you're you're seeing the shift where people are like almost like collectively just being like, can we just all agree to like find some bounce together? So yeah. Like, so like, I tell you what, though, I'll tell you what, and this is just it's hard for me to accept it sometimes. Uh, where we are today, because you know, I don't want to sound here like uh, this, this is how we did it in the old days, you know, uphill both ways type shit. Because you know, let's be honest, like our industry, we inherited a broken system. Yes, dude. you know what I mean. Like my generation of chefs, I'm in my you know mid forties now, mid forties, almost mid forties. No, mid forties, forty four. Right. So, um, you know, for me, we inherited a broken system. We did our best with it. And our generation of chefs, we really saw the transition happening in real time. Uh, as we, as line cooks, I remember the day when uh, I was a sous chef at Del Posto in New York. Mark Ladner, the chef, came up to me and said, Eli, you got to start punching in. I was like, what? Punching in? Like, I hadn't punched in for years. Like in New York, it was all shift pay, right? Mm-hmm. You get a hundred bucks, you get one hundred fifty bucks a shift, right? I don't. It doesn't matter if you come in at nine a.m. to get your mise en place done, or and you stay till one a.m. Yeah, yeah, you get one hundred fifty bucks. Yeah, that shift is relative to the person working. Yeah, your exactly. shift might not be someone else's shift. Right, if like you're if, green. Your shift might be you know fourteen hours, right, or yeah. more. Uh, if you're, you know, if you know what you're doing, you have that muscle memory. Maybe you might be able to get it with the 12 hour day. Right, you're always <laughs> trying to shave it down a little yeah. bit, right? So you don't have to like go to bed at 2 a.m. and wake up at 8 a.m. to, mm-hmm. you know, go back to work. But that's what it was, and that's what you learn. And the thing is about time, time spent in the kitchen is only putting more, um, more muscle memory, more information, like. You're going to succeed quicker if you're able to put that time in. Yeah. I, I, again, I don't think I don't think it has to be unhealthy. And there's there's you know it's been abusive over the years for sure. Looking back, I'm afraid though with this mentality of going too far, that oh quality of life yada 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 is going to what's it going to do to our industry? Because we're craftsmen, we're craftswomen, like. You go to Japan, right? What do they call it? The ikigai? It's like their reason for living. It's yeah. what they do. Like yeah. if you're a knife maker, it's your ikigai. Yeah. Like that's what you do. It's part of who you are. I love Japanese culture, by the way, man. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> it's so great. They figured so much. Eastern culture, dude, They just I just feel like the, that, that culture is so ancient and they figured so much out. Eastern culture. They're just so far ahead. Like it's your, it's your, what's your definite purpose in life, right? Your well, ikigai. I think what we do often, we try to do too much, Yeah. right? So- if you if you look at the ikigai as the mentality, they focus on one thing, two things as a craft, right? So if you know, all about the knife maker, right? So they're banging out a knife or two every day for forty years. 
And every time they're doing it, they're reaching closer and closer to that elusive perfection, right? Well, maybe in the Western world, we try to do too much, right? We want to have multiple restaurants. We want to have, you know, we want to we want to do this. We want to be on TV. We want to do the idea, yada, yada, where we focus on, you know, people's telling us we're successful, mm-hmm. right? By sort of the the what we're reading, what we're hearing about us these days. You have to be everywhere all the time, ready for anything. If you're in the industry now, and you got to have social media, you got to do this, you got to do that. Where I tell you what, like that high-end sushi chef in Tokyo or wherever, Kyoto, you know, wherever it is, they're not worried about that stuff. They are really focused on getting better within themselves. Yeah. It's about like the words that were coming to my my mind, like the Western culture is really about reach, not impact, you know, recently, you know, but I think we're starting to realize that you can't be, we, we are by nature tribal creatures. And the reason why we're a tribe, well, part of the, the a side effect of being tribal is, you know, we when we're in a tribe, we get the the collective strengths of the group, right? And over like as I think our our groups grew as culture expanded, as cities got bigger, I think that we kind of we we the the world of specialists really started to evolve. There right? you go. Yeah. And now we're at this place where. You know, and that's why I think having your being seen is so important, and 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 having your definite pr- purpose is so important because it contributes. Like you bring value to the group, and it's so important to bring because I think that's part of it's baked into us because mm-hmm. we ne- we needed to bring something to the group, or the group would kick us out, right? Like yeah, you know, yeah, right. So um, we're show up, but or- now like I think we live in a world where it's almost there's just so much pressure, and we're getting it from so many angles. You can't shut it off, and it's constant. And we're not hardwired for this shit, which explains why there's so many people who are so stressed out and anxiety is running rampant and suicide rates are higher than ever. And it's just like, mm-hmm. what the fuck are we doing? Part of my language. But no, like, it's a, it's a house of cards. Yeah. It really is. It's a house yeah. of cards. You know, this day and age, uh, you know, as a chef, you can't just focus on your craft. Mm-hmm. You have to be all these other things to be, time for to podcasts. be, right, to be <laughs> successful, yeah. uh, in the eyes of whoever's judging mm-hmm. typically. Right. We need people who want to work 100 hours a week still. Our industry needs that because by nature, humans want to evolve, right? So there's going to be the ones that are obsessed, the ones that are so prolific. Look at the best artists in the world. They were not just the best because of their skill level. because their proficiency and they're so prolific. 10,000 hours. right? Right. I mean, you look at Van Gogh, right? Like- you know, I think within he 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 only painted for less than twenty years, but he was putting out you know five ten paintings a week, you know for that span, and you can see where it evolved over the years very quickly. It evolved, yeah. you know, and is his work the best? Is it unique? Yeah, absolutely. But he has so much. Yeah. You look at, you know, some other artists out there. Yeah. You know, Dali and, you know, um, any of these guys, right? They're prolific and they're obsessed. It's an obsession. So you're actually hitting on something that I, did I, do you finish your train of thoughts? I don't want to. No, I, th- I think, but we need that because we need the Renee's Rizepis. We need the Fran Adrias. We need those ones that are the special ones, right? The ones that change and shift on a global scale of what it means to be eating. You know, you look at the Roca brothers in Spain and 
the one brother, the pastry, um, the pastry chef, I forget, forget his name right now, uh, Jordan, he has some cloud that floats over a dish now. And they really bring it out on sticks as it's in the air. <laughs> I've seen photos of this thing. And it sits there over a plate and drips a rain onto a dish. That's crazy. With no strings attached. Yeah. This is not a floating balloon from millennia. Yeah. This is a cloud of foam that somehow just levitates. That's wild. And you're like, what in the hell? <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Like, It's just those guys that are just... It is just in them. Yeah. Well, and th- we need those people. And they're not going to go away. So it's weird. So one of the things I like to echo is the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything. Right? Uh, oh, yeah. And then, like, mean, that's, so, that's, that's wisdom as you get older. Right? So as I'm – like I study people and I'm like, wow, like how do we – when I started this podcast, it was like about how to like – find that secret like certain people found the secret i don't know if there is a secret i think that the world is so complex the world is so diverse um you know and and i think also i think we like you pointed out a lot of these people are obsessed and i think a lot of success on the outside looking in sometimes looks like success but if you start getting into what's actually happening for these people to get to oh yeah they're they are, miserable exactly or they have some kind of mental illness Obsessive compulsive disorder. I mean, look at the best artists, right? Your Amy yeah. Whitehouses, your you know these people that are that are truly obsessed with what they do, but it kills them, you know, you know literally. It literally does, yeah, because that's that's they think that's happiness. They're chasing it, and it, it's it's fleeting, right? Yeah, your your body only holds up to a certain point. I think of Charlie Trotter, right, in like the early two thousands when he was coming up through like the late nineties yeah. and the early two yeah. thousands. I'm not gonna deny his greatness, you know, so skilled, so. A really incredible person. Everyone kind of hated him. He Everyone was a dick. He worked with, yeah, I he, mean, you know, Charlie kind of Trotter had a reputation you know of just him? being an asshole. No, I, I never worked for him. But you know, when you hear stories about you know after a bad service, the uh, the cooks have to get out toothbrushes and clean the grout of the kitchen. Yeah, you know what I mean, like that type of stuff. Where that was just manic. Yeah, there's teaching a lesson. Yeah. and then being an asshole. Right? Yeah, and I think that's but that's unfortunately his legacy. Yeah. Um, but I guess one of the point I'm trying to make is we look at these people who go to such extremes, the outliers, yeah, right? Right. The, Renee, the Renees, the Charlie Trotters, like these guys are outliers. We all can't be like them. And I don't think it's healthy to try to be like them, if I'm being completely honest. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, it depends on you. Yeah. Depends on the person. It, that's, and it the really more does. I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything. It really does. It, we it, live it, in a know, complex system. Right. You know? I mean, some people are wired that way. Yeah. And that's who they are. You look at Paul Baku. Like, you know what I mean? Like. He died at like eighty something, late eighties, and he made he was the father of Nouvelle Cuisine, mm-hmm. you know, and he's the one that created the whole movement of Nouvelle Cuisine, which is what sort of flooded the the global sort of fine dining market in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. And was he obsessed a hundred percent? Did he die? No, I mean, he did he die unhappy? Like no, he's he's a he's a he's a god. He's a demigod, right? Mm-hmm. He's in the pantheon of so. What I'm trying to say is that we need chefs, young cooks who are still obsessed in a good way for the right reasons. You know what I mean? Like, is it healthy to, um, you know, work yourself, you know, ragged by the time you're 30 years old and your body's given up? No, you have to be smart about it. But if you're working for the right chefs now that, that have the, figured out how to strike a balance of a healthy kitchen culture, 
it's not really about the hours work. It's about the culture to mm-hmm. me, right? It's about the culture in the restaurant, the culture in the kitchen that is really the driving force now. There's never been more focus on developing that strong culture because you're not only, you know, again, going back to like, we just got more shit to worry about than ever. You know, we had to have a good culture. We had to make sure that, you know, our sous chefs are also good leaders, right? Because that's a lot of thing too, right? Like out of our industry, right? We're always hiring or always um, elevating one's position out of desperation, right? Because we're always like, oh, we just need a body. We need a body. We need a body. Oh, the sous chef quit. All right, who's the best line cook? You're now the sous chef. Mm-hmm. You have no leadership skills. You have yeah. no idea. You're 24 years old. But now your you're frontal s- lobe hasn't even developed. Like you don't have emotional <laughs> right. intelligence. Your frontal cortex. <laughs> like, you have no empathy still. Yeah. You have like you know you're just you're just your body's still sort of de- you know growing and finding who you really truly are going to be. Yeah. And for the longest time, that was just it. Next man up. Next man up. But what does that do? It slowly erodes at the foundation of what culture is within your organization and nowadays you know we're starting people out at 17 18 19 dollars 20 dollars an hour for a line cook depending on where you are in new york it's like 22 24 25 dollars a line cook you know your your porters and your um and your sort of uh supports teams you know they're starting at 15 16 17 18 dollars an hour now so our, our dollar's not going as far but we still have to accept that so how do we find, how do we juggle that, that desire to push forward, to keep, you know, your team there as long as you need to get the job done, but still have a healthy culture, still be able to, you know, pay them right, See, treat think, them right. I think the answer, sorry, are you, did no, I? No, no, go ahead. Okay. So I think the I'm answer. I'm long-winded, so just feel free. <laughs> no, man. Um, we're in. here to talk. That's the whole point. You're doing a great job. I'm loving the conversation, but I think that to, to kind of round off your thought, or at least from my perspective, I think the only way we're going to get there is if we get there together and co- co- create collective standards. Because what's going to end up happening is we're going to just start trying to outdo each other. Yeah. And it's just this ego-based bullshit of trying to be the best. You know, At, at the end of the day, we're, we can go further together as an industry. And if we're going to make change, the cool thing about change, the cool thing about cultural change, cultural transformation is that it's exponential. Yeah. It's not linear. Right. And if you don't believe me, like – just look at the straw on the, the, the turtle's nose, mm. right? One video went viral and people like for a lot of people don't use straws anymore. Like the, the percentage of straw, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, we can change that things. That was a wake up call. Yeah. But I think it's going to take a lot of people kind of getting behind the same um, values and saying like, we all agree on this and like, these are the new standards. And I think we, we as a collective industry need to turn to the, the consumer and say, stop, like, Stop! Like you know what I'm trying to say? Like yeah, I mean we we're we reacting do, to them. Yeah, so for so long, our job is hospitality, right? Yeah, we want to make sure the customer is happy. It's all about making sure they're leaving. You know, nowadays everybody has a review. You know, uh, if they want it, you know, what I mean, so you're more susceptible to, you know, one mistake can you know uh, grow exponentially uh, and have a major impact. And we all know a thousand things have to go right for one person's dining experience to be excellent. And you know, for us as collectively as an industry, we are making big strides right now. We we had to have that that really frank look in the mirror and say, "Whoa, like 
we're doing something incorrect. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we can do better and that's yeah. happening without yeah, a doubt. It totally. Is. And even at the highest level of kitchens, like if you're still operating like it's 1998 still and you're barking at your chefs and yelling and it's, it's a, you know, uh, it's a toxic environment and, you know, women aren't feeling comfortable or, or, or treated the same. And, you know, there's racism rampant and, you know, like all those things that, that we all saw, you know, back in the day, like you're an idiot. Like you're an idiot. Like it's you're you're it's it's only a t- it's only a matter of time until you get called out and your company's uh um gets ripped apart because of it. I I worked for Mario Batali, right? I worked for Mario Batali for almost 3 years. The most formative years of my industry or of uh, the most formative years of my career. You know what I mean? Like I learned so much. I went from working in you know these high-end French driven restaurants, French American uh, Oceana with Cornelius Gallagher, who was a sociopath. Um, you know, we got Laurent Torrendel, who's a French, you know, classic chef. And there's a Belgium, uh, you know, uh, chef de cuisine in there that was just a complete asshole all the time. You, you know, know, so it's, you know, we've had to work for these people. And when I went to, sh- when I went to go work for the Batali group, the Bastianish Batali group, it was a complete shift. Like their culture was so much better. But it's also the Italian mentality. This is Torisi, right? The last restaurant. You no, the, this is. I met those guys through at Del Posto. I worked with oh, okay. uh, Mario Carbone at Del Posto and and Rich Torisi. Uh, but when I when I went to work with for Mark Ladner at Del Posto, I walked into a kitchen that was so different than what I'm used to. It was it was a it was a kitchen of collaboration. It was a kitchen of understanding, communication, and respect. And you know, like. We had, you know, a lot of Latino cooks were in high positions. Like, it was very different than what I was used to. You know, where it was a very white kitchen and establish, you know, white establishment and all that. It was just a much, much more um, peaceful situation. Yeah. And But you can also look at Italian food versus French food. Like, can, I won't say French country food, but in general, like, the, the French Nouvelle, like, the French American, the high-end stuff, right? It's a very different style of cooking in general. You can't cook Italian, good Italian food angry. That's my mantra with that. You know what I mean? That's why I went that's to that's, with love. That's why I was drawn to Italian cuisine. Mm. And ever since then, that's what I sought out. And that's my, you know, that's sort of the prism yeah. that I look through in I, my food. I think this is a great segue. We kind of we kind of started the way we end, which is fine. We're intense. I'm loving the conversation. The mission is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. We inspire by sharing your story and how you got to where you are. We empower by sharing the knowledge you picked up along the way. We transform by sharing your values and how we can go into the the future together. Absolutely. Right? And we kind of started with the transform. I think we might come back to some of that stuff, but I want to absolutely make sure we, we share a, a lot of, or we use a lot of our time today to talk about your journey, uh, the yeah. people you work for, how each one of those those uh, those working experiences help mold the chef you became and who the man you are today. Um, so let's just kind of do that. Let's, where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Because you're from Washington, right? Yeah, I'm from Washington State. Yeah. So I grew up in a really small town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains, it's a 500-person town. It's not like there's a town close to it. It's really rural, really remote. Zero and restaurants. Zero yeah. restaurants. Yeah. yeah, there was a little burger joint that was there for a little bit. Uh, the really the only sta- the only restaurant that ever made it was the Pioneer Tavern, and they had a burger. Okay, you know what I mean? Like that was it. That was that was the extent of restaurants in our town. 
uh, this this entrepreneurial spirited lady came to town from a larger city, and she wanted to open a, a, a high end restaurant in our little redneck town. It lasted for quite a while, really? but that's where, that's where I, I I first got in there uh, when I was fourteen years old. Started washing dishes, busting tables. Before you know it, I was eighteen. I knew what I wanted to do in my career. Uh, the the you know the food industry called me. And that's where that's where it all jumped off, and we moved down to Portland, uh, studied down there for about four years, and spent another four years in Seattle. Uh, and then when I was around 24 years old, I realized that I wasn't working in the level of dining, uh, in level of restaurants that I really wanted to be. I knew there's more out there. I didn't know how to access it. So for me, you know, wanting to, I'd always wanted to move to the East Coast for a little bit. So when you're 24, this kind of came up. Yeah. So I mean, I was working in the industry for eight years by then. So zooms through the, your career real quick without getting into any detail. So you kind of already did that. You, you Washington, born and raised in Washington. Were you born in Washington, or is that where you just grew up? Yeah, born and raised. Uh, yeah, same town. Worked in Portland. You worked in Seattle. Uh, around the age of 24, you said, "I want to go test out the, the East Coast." Uh, you landed in New York City. Yeah, so I actually went to the Culinary Institute of America. Okay. Yeah, so... How old were you? I was 25 by the time I got there. Wow. So, but I had already put in a lot of time, and what I, I had worked for a corporate company as a quote-unquote kitchen manager, right? So, I, what, what, with that, and I really appreciate that was because... Was this before CI? Or? This was before CI, yeah. yeah. So, I spent basically four years in this company that was very corporate, uh, you know, it was... You had corporate chef. You had you know quarterly inspections. You had your uh, you were responsible for your food costs, your labor costs, scheduling, uh, pricing, menu. You know, like which is all good stuff for the record. Amazing with stuff. Things that we should all be doing. Amazing <laughs> stuff because what happens nowadays are typically the in fine dining, right? Like eventually you become a sous chef, but you you don't know anything. Yeah. Like, you know, our industry is made up of a bunch of broken toys, right? So a lot of people don't have college educations. A lot of them barely got through high school. Like, you know, industry finds people because they don't fit in anywhere else. You know, so for me, having that background and that really solid understanding of numbers, dollars and cents, uh, you know, even though I felt like I was really far behind on my cooking knowledge for being 24, which in hindsight I wasn't. But, you know, for me, it was like I knew I wanted to, get into New York City. I was a little intimidated, not sure I, I really knew where to land. This is before all, you know, you couldn't just go on eater.com and see the best restaurants in the city, you know, so this is before the internet and all that. So for me, I had a friend that had done this, done something similar and I wanted to move to New York. And so I came out, um, you know, you do your, you do your externship within the first year that you're there. I sought out this place, uh, Oceana in midtown Manhattan and that was really sort of my jumping off point. So 25 CIA, I see uh, Casa, if I say any of these things incorrectly, please feel free to correct yep. me. Uh, Casa Lever, or Le- Lever. Lever, yeah. thank you very much. Uh, Oceana, uh, Del Posto, uh, and then Tori, um, Torizzi. Torizzi. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Torizzi Italian. My last special. name is Cacciatore. My yeah. ancestors are rolling in their graves right now, man. I'm telling uh, you. Uh, uh, Torizzi Italian uh, specialties. And then that's around the time Ellen Yin found you or yeah you, right? so in 2012 i had spent um you know roughly eight years in new york by that time and the uh, i was looking to you know it's a funny story like rich Teresi and mario carbone who now own major food group and it's international company at the highest level uh probably the i, I don't know if there's a company in history 
that has grown to the level that they have in a 12-year span. Um, you know, they started at this little tiny restaurant in, in, on Mulberry Street, Prince of Mulberry in, in uh, Nolita in the neighborhood in New York City. Uh, I had reached, I had uh, worked out, sorry, I had worked with Mario and Rich uh, at Del Posto. Mario was actually my sous chef at the time when I first uh, got hired on. And he was actually the reason, I had met him before that. He was the reason I, I got the job at, at Del Posto. And, you know, Rich had worked with Mario. They're actually roommates of the CIA when they were 18. So they're, they're like, they're old friends. You know what I mean? And the two couldn't be more opposite, but that's what's great about them. Yeah. Mario is very much the, he, he cooks with that Italian grandma spirit. Mm. You know, Rich is more the technician, a little bit more uh, focus on, he grew up, uh, he basically grew up in Andrew Carmelini's kitchen, Chef Andrew Carmelini at Cafe Balud. Uh, so while he they did sort of dabble in Italian, it was more French inspired or high end French. Got it. Got it. And so those two got together after you know they sort of worked parallel in the in the in New York City for about ten years, and they started off and they wanted to open Teresi Italian Specialties and it was this little twenty five seater in uh, Nolita, and they did lunch during the day so like very they wanted to recreate the italian delicatessen which had had really started to you don't see it in in new york anymore really you have to go to a couple neighborhoods they still have it but you know these guys are true italian americans um and they wanted to really look back and be inspired by that and that's what they did and they started focusing um kind of like what you know renee rizepi at noma was doing with focusing on sort of a uh, a forgotten or never respected cuisine, which was Scandinavian food, right? And and really sort of turned that on its head. Rich and Mario did that with Italian American food, and because you know, let's face it, Italian American food is like meatball, you know, spaghetti. Yeah, you got your veal Parmesan, parm, your chicken yeah. parm, you got your baked ziti, et cetera, et cetera. They were like, you know what? Let's put our years of expertise working in fine dining for some of the best chefs in the industry. And focus on Italian American food, mm. right? And that's what they've done. And you look at Carbone Restaurant now, and I was supposed to be the chef of Carbone. That was so. The deal was, I, I, I like my career kind of worked in parallel with theirs as well. Uh, and I said, they said, you know what, Eli, come down to Teresi, be the CDC here for uh, a little bit, help us get Carbone going because Rich Teresi had his restaurant. Mario Carbone was going to be next. You know, I was actually written into the ownership, original ownership papers of Carbone. I'd probably be a millionaire now if <laughs> if, if I, had, I had done that. But it wasn't me. I'm not Italian American. Mm. I cannot associate. I mean, I cannot identify with that food. And for me, I did not want to be doing food that I couldn't identify with. Yeah. And the goal was for for them, like you know, they get Carbone open, then I would get my restaurant. That was sort of the original. Do you still feel that way? Like, do you think that we need to be from a place to be able to cook the food? I think truly, if if you can attach yourself or identify yourself with something, it it automatically becomes genuine. I it's, I see that perspective, you know what I mean, and I feel that perspective. I understand yeah, that. I think it helps. I think it gives you a ten fifteen percent advantage well, on as we else. go into the future, and I feel like as globalization becomes more prevalent, I think that we're not we're like pretty close, hundred years, fifty years away from. Like, is anybody ever going to be truly of a place? 
Yeah, we move. The world is a lot smaller than it used to well, be. Well, moving the around. The beautiful thing about even you know the you know what happened over in 2020 with the sort of a cultural revolution again. You know, with the George Floyd protests, and um, you know, you look at the um, black culture in America, for example, and you see how the mentality has shifted within black chefs of like really exploring the roots, right? And and using Africa even, like going that far back. I literally just watched uh first couple episodes of High on the Hog, which yeah. came out a couple of years ago on Netflix, which I recommend everybody to watch, uh, which is a beautiful show about, you know, um, an author going back to Africa and learning about the roots of the food and how, the, how you still see those similarities within the um, – was considered black food, like Southern food, right? Even though, you know, people associate, you know, certain things with Southern style food, your green, you know, your collard greens, your Grace. your chicken, your, you know, all these things which almost have been cliches within the, the you know, the black uh, community at this point. They all have roots. There's a reason why they cook that way. There's a reason why they use okra, mm. right? Like Nobody else would touch it. Right, like, yeah. but in Africa, like okras in Western Africa, okra is a staple, mm-hmm. a staple. Uh, yams, right? The idea of a yam, even though we don't have a true yam over here, it's it's a sweet potato, and that became their yam. Mm-hmm. You know, so they started cooking with the same mentality, but with the ingredients they have here and that they could only get here. So, was okra an ingredient that originated in Africa? Yes, and they I, brought I, it I believe so. Yeah, okay, I did I not believe know so. that. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm loving what you're giving us, man. I'm loving. I want to go back, though. I want to. Yeah, let's of, go back. If you let's zoom up to thirty thousand feet. Yep. Looking at your journey, um, when at what point did you really start getting intentional about your life and what you're doing? When, do you remember the point where you're like, "I'm going to get intentional"? Yeah, I was, probably was like seventeen, seventeen, 16, years old. 17. From moving forward from that time of intentionality, was there a transformative moment for you a person an experience something that kind of took you from i'm interested in this to oh this is a game changer this is how like can you and like let's just kind of go thinking like that moving forward through your career the, yeah the biggest trans, transition interesting question i think one of my aha moments was when i got to the cia okay and looking back did i need to go to the Colorado institute probably not did i need that forty thousand dollar bill probably not but this happened during a transformative time i think where there was a period where you did need that and as the world evolved around us i think yeah. it's becoming a little bit more obsolete you right know? you know and you know we still use culinary schools as a resource for employment and all that so i think there's there's definitely a great thing uh culinary schools are, are still great i think that's the most valuable thing exactly yeah especially and, the way you did it 24 years old you probably showed up at culinary school different than the 18 year olds that oh yeah 100 percent. you know i already <laughs> yeah. had eight years under my belt exactly so i had a totally different perspective i was in it to win it yeah and like those professors are gonna see this shit even at 24 years old even though like looking back like oh you're a 24 year old you don't know shit like I was hardcore. But you're showing up differently. Yeah, yeah. I you was got hard- the partying out of your system. Yeah, you exactly. Know, you weren't there to socialize. You were there to get an education yeah. and to network with people who can advance your career. Exactly. So one of the aha moments I had when I first got there and we're, we were assigned gastronomy. So it's like gastronomy 101. So I was teaching the history of food and all that. And I was assigned to do a report on this chef that I never heard about uh, named Fran Adria. And this is 2005. So, you know, 
he was definitely world world renowned by them, but I didn't know who he was. I didn't know. So, and the carrot foam, the idea of a foam, right? That was, that was like, I was like, wait, people are doing foams like with food? Like, holy shit. Like, is that, you know, that's even possible. I did the report on him and it just opened my mind. It just like, I was like, whoa, like there's a whole nother level that I had no idea about. Right. And for me, that was, I never got, I was never a modernist chef. I use modernist techniques here and there. Um, I don't have that precise of a brain. I just like to cook. It's more of a feeling, more of a feeling for me. But that right there was a moment I was like, oh, so I can take these other ideas I have in my head and present them in a way that I never knew that was even possible. Um, That was one of them. I think another one would be when I walked into Del Posto, which I talked about earlier, where I was like, oh, so you don't have to be an angry asshole to get your way. Like you don't have to fight with your cook next to you. When was Del Posto on a timestamp? That know? was 2007. 2007? Okay. So yeah. you, it was 2003 you, you graduated the Culinary Institute. Um, you were 25 years old. Uh, and then you went straight into corporate, though. You said you were doing corporate stuff? Well, that was before the Culinary Institute. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so that was before I moved to Seattle. That was all in Portland and Washington. So from like a business perspective, I mean, one thing I like to say, you're, you want to open a restaurant, right? I hope you can cook. Right, but can you do all the things that you have to do to make the business successful? That's what I always say to these young chefs who are so eager to open their own restaurants. I always say, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, just be careful. Yeah, because most of them have no experience. Most of them don't even know. Like I remember the first time I was like, "Hold on a second, we have to pay payroll tax." So the 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 staff gets taxes taken out of their check, and then we have to pay payroll tax. <laughs> like we're paying. A tax on paying them, you know what I mean? I was like, wait, that's like, that's like a three percent to the, you know, of your of you know of your um, P and L, right? Your budget, right there. So you pay somebody a hundred thousand dollars, and then you owe the government three thousand dollars at least. <laughs> like, doesn't make any sense. At least I'm providing opportunity for people. Right? Yeah, you like, know what I mean? Like, uh, taxes, liability, legal, attorneys, like all these things that you. Do you know the rationality behind that? Of what? Charging on a, a paying somebody a like, payroll tax, yeah. The rationality, yeah. The aside from yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. but like, how do they rationalize? Like, because the way I look at that, like, if you're, you should be incentivizing people to open businesses and to create opportunity for other people, and then you penalize them for the it. world is not set up for small businesses. <laughs> like, it, doesn't it really make sense. isn't. Um, but Our, here's the thing that I don't think people realize is that at the end of the day, we still are a democracy. And if we don't like the way something's being done, we should talk about it because our vote matters. We sure, can, yeah, absolutely. But people think they're so helpless. Yeah. You know, it's kind of bullshit. Yeah. You know? Like we, we like to play the victim mentality. Well, we, I was just listening to um, some reggae greatest hits yesterday and, you know, Bob Marley, you know, stand up for your rights came on. I was like, I was thinking about that song. I was just like, wow, this song really meant something. You know what I mean? And it really made me think a little bit about how today we just don't do that as much. Right? We just accept. We just accept that, oh, it is what it is. And we don't really have any – we're not in a position to change it. Well, that's why I love the time. That's why I'm so excited about the time we live in, especially people like you and me. And you got you know Kyle and Sarah that's doing the Nations Restaurant Owners podcast. Mm-hmm. You got Sean Walshef that's doing the Influencers podcast. You got Jensen Cummings that's doing the um, – oh, my God. Sorry, Jensen. Uh, do you know the one? 
No, nope, I don't. Uh, uh, the Unsung Heroes podcast. Unsung Heroes, okay. Yeah. Right so there's this network of people talking, right? And then what happens is if one of the, the, the people who are, are all having these shows get together and start talking. Then there's just this, this alignment of information that starts happening. And for the, the that's the most exciting thing about the time we live in right now is that if we if, if there is a time for exponential cultural change, it's now. Oh yeah, because we control the narrative now. Yeah. It's it's change comes from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like. So I hate to steal your thunder, when the direct, but I, you, you got me yeah. excited. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> keep on going if you can remember. No, but you know, it's like I said, be careful what you wish for if you want to open a restaurant because if you're this, you know, if you're sort of a badass and you're a sous chef somewhere or CDC and you know you feel like oh I can cook this food or my I'm better than my chef you know and I'm cooking somebody else's food I'm not getting credit for it or I'm cooking my food I'm not getting credit for it and this whole thing about even line cooks need credit about ego. Well, <laughs> no, but like, no, yeah, absolutely. We all have ego. Like, you we know, do. It's, I do. Yeah, and you should have ego. Yeah. There's a healthy balance there. Ego doesn't have to be a four letter word. Um, you know, it's, but if you're if you're like sitting there and you're like, all right, I'm ready to strike off my own, yada yada yada. Just be prepared that you no, know, as a CDC or sous chef, you could put a hundred percent of your attention on. A station, a group of yeah. stations, you know, a kitchen. Just make sure orders are in. Make sure your schedule's tight. Yada yada yada. But then you go out and you say, "Oh, now I want to open my own restaurant." Your a third of your attention now is going to be on ancillary areas, just to make sure your restaurant is open every day. Yeah, and it has the permitting it needs. Yeah, and it has the the gas bills paid. Yada yada yada. Right. So there's this. This, there's you know 20 things that every day that you have to focus on now that you didn't have to yeah. before. You, you know, back to this idea that we are hardwired to exist in a tribe, right? And certain people are good at certain things and collectively we're awesome together, right? And if you want to, like, as soon as you make that commitment to go open your own place, you, the, whatever that lane that you were in that you love the industry for, whatever that one thing you got to focus mm-hmm. on now just gets like you're, the point you're trying to make like becomes like a, just a fraction of all the things you have to do. It's the E-Myth. It's, it's the like a single lane road becomes a seven lane highway. Yeah. Have, are you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Have you heard of the E-Myth, the entrepreneurial myth? I don't think so. Michael no. Gerber. Mm-hmm. The, uh, it's a great book, but that's exactly the point that he makes is like Susie loves making pies. Susie makes a pies for Sally. Sally's the owner. Sally makes pies way better than Susie, but you know, or whatever that yeah, I get I my names. Yeah, but the I point is, you. is like I can go make my own pies and do my pies better. But then you go open your own place to make your own pies, and now you have no time to make pies. Yes, you know now so and so is making your pies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I always say, like as a chef, when you open a second restaurant, and you you're now going from one singular restaurant. You know, you're you're doing all the things, yada yada. You know that 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 go into a restaurant. I'll stop saying yada yada yada. I don't want to say that so much today. <laughs> it's working. I get it. I'm picking uh, it up. But the uh, you know, as soon as you open a second restaurant, if you're not in the kitchen, I'm sorry. Like you can have a CDC, a great CDC in there, but if you're not the one plating the food, tasting the food every night at lineup, whatever you do, whatever your sort of method is to get open each each day for service. If you're not the one plating it, tasting it, you're the quality is going to go down ten percent, no matter what, because you're just you. You're that restaurant is successful because that's you. Mm. It's like when we opened up High Street from Fork, you know, about a year after I got down to Philadelphia, um, we opened up High Street, 
you know, luckily those two were attached, so I could bounce back and forth during service. Um, but then you open a third one in another location, half mile away, and you know now you're like, okay, now you're just you're putting out fires. Now, yeah, you know what I mean. You're become a fireman. You yeah. Know? yeah, and most of your days putting out fires and not focusing on service or tasting. So you know you throw in family life, et cetera, et cetera, in there. How do you how do you maintain it? Yeah. No, I mean, I think you maintain it by, you know, real, realizing we can go further together, mm, yeah, you know, yeah. and um, when I first started this podcast, I mean, I, I still feel like I'm super naive. You know, I'm constantly learning. I think I figure something out and I learn something else. That's a totally different perspective. That also works. We live in a complex system. But one of the most consistent things over time, like I, I when I first started, I would only interview James Beard award-winning chefs or Michelin stars. And mm-hmm. my thought was, this mm-hmm. is what the world needs. We need more small, like the big corporations of the world are ruining things. We need more smaller mom and pop operations. We need to, we need to spread the money out and I'm going to teach people how to, to run a business so we can, so we can le- level the playing field mm-hmm. so we can close the gap. Right. But at the same time, I started talking to more larger companies and organizations realizing that, to be competitive, you need to be good at so many things and not, yeah. you know, so now it's just like, wait a second, maybe there is like, like everything, maybe there's a balance, right, right? right? Maybe we look at these big companies and we say, okay, they're doing this really well, but what if we teach everybody how to act like a big company? I think what ends up happening is you shift from single unit operators to more multi-unit, 10 location, 15 location operators. Sure, and yeah. you see those, you know, 400, 500, thousands of locations sh- shrinking more to like, Maybe 100, 200 locations. You get right. regional chains, right? right yeah. I think that's the sweet spot right there. What are your thoughts as I'm saying this? Well, I, I never had any ambition to have a huge company. Mm-hmm. That was never my thought. I, my partner and I were very aligned on it. From the very beginning, we, we, we tossed out a number like we would like to be operating about $15 million in revenue, whatever that meant. That could be 15 restaurants doing a million. That could be, you know, three doing uh, five million each, you know, whatever it was, right? That was our really goal. We felt at that point we could, we 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 both could, you know, live financially viable um, as long as the, you know the restaurants were running correctly and all that. We never got to that number. Uh, we'll get more into that in my life. How it took a big turn, yeah. uh, later in the podcast here, but the, you know. I think we got we're, we're like eight or nine million right now. Gross so, revenue, yeah. yeah. And you know we're we're all you know of course that's six locations, that's six restaurants. One, two, uh, three, four, five. I okay. guess you would call it four and a half. Got it. Um, and because we have like a small satellite got thing it. going, I saw on. like six different names on the yeah website. yeah we have a few different things going on, got but um, yeah you know it's it's we're in a good spot, but. You know, if we had one concept that we could have, you know, went to scale with, it'd probably be High Street. But even that had its own quirks and difficulties because it was a very specific, you know, it was all-day cafe, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, an amazing bakery program, um, you know, local, everything, you know, everything local, local, local. And, you know, that, you know, even that would be hard to scale up. But I never had ambitions of having a chain restaurant group. I like diversity. I like being able to be challenged. If I walk into this restaurant, I have to put this hat on. Yeah, there's no right answer. Right. You know, there's only what's right for you. And I think that's the, one of the biggest lessons I've learned too is that there is no f- 
formula. What a freaking boring world we would live in mm-hmm. if there was a formula where everything was exactly the same. Yeah, That's right. the only way to do yeah. it. If there's only what's right for you based off of where what your values are, what your vision is, mm-hmm. what your skill what your skills are, and who you have to work with. You know, like everybody's life is a different, there's a different set of ingredients in the pantry and you got to build something with what you got. You, you open the pantry. This is life. What can we do? Right. And that, that's, that's everybody, you know? So depending, it all, it all friggin' matters. Right. Yeah. But I think what's, what's good is we can share perspective and the, sh- the more perspective we start sharing with each other, the more ingredients we start getting to our pantry. Right. Yeah. And like, Oh wait, this is oh based off of what I already know and my skill set in the kitchen, I should use these ingredients. Right. Yeah. This analogy is literally just coming to me as I'm, but like, no, I love it. It's, it's, I love it's crazy. It. So there is no right answer. I love a good That's why analogy. I talk to everybody now, you know, cause I don't know what's right. Yeah. So I'm going to talk to everybody. Well, this is great about your podcast is that, you know, I look at it and you know, it's, it's a blend of like, you're not just looking for somebody who's, you know, in the headlines or trending. Like you're, you're, you're a very democratic podcast. Um, you know, where you said you used to focus mostly on James Beard winning or, you know, real sort of well-known chefs or whatever. And that's what I do with, with my podcast, a lot of it, because I think there's some great lessons in there for, yeah. you know, um, for the like fine dining chefs and stuff like that, which is really, you know, my podcast is geared more towards um, the uh, up and coming future leaders. Yeah. And you're a chef. Industry. So you speak a whole different language than yeah. I speak. I'm not a chef. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up cooking. I like to cook, but I have so much respect for the, the title chef. That mm-hmm. I would never mm-hmm. call him. I would even call myself a cook. Everybody's a chef now. Just put <laughs> yeah, on your Instagram. Right? Seriously. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't even decide who comes on the show anymore because who am I to decide? Like who, mm. because I'm trying to be objective. So if I'm nice. the one that's the filter, then I can't be objective. Interesting. I'm, the last question I'm going to ask you is who do you respect and admire? And that's what steers the ship for who, me. Who do I – are you asking so, me? No, not yet. Okay. That's going to be the last question. <laughs> okay. That's how we wrap all right, up. All right. I'm loving this conversation, man. Uh, and I, 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 I want to keep it to the, I want to share your story, but like, I think when you get two podcasters together, yeah. we get into these rabbit holes, but you're, we're sharing like great stuff, you know, and I'm really enjoying this, but I do want to know, um, like before we start getting, cause I want to share your story. I want to share the, the key lessons. I think the, where we left off on your timeline was you're at the CIA and, um, that was, that was a, a pivotal point for you. Yeah. But what, what, what made it pivotal? Well, what it, what the CIA did for me was it introduced me to who exactly was doing what at that time. So for me, I wanted to work for chefs who were going to challenge me. I wanted to work for chefs who are in their prime. And I stumbled upon Oceana Restaurant for my externship, uh, which was a phenomenal learning experience. I mean, as high pressure as high pressure can get way undersized kitchen so many cooks i mean you had to you had to have your cutting board vertical on your station not horizontal because you were so tight with people like you were lined up like your prep area was a three by two area with two shelves in front of you so is oceana one of these restaurants that's like seats 60 people with 40 people in the kitchen it was yeah i mean since then it, it they 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 sort of made it more. I think they're in Rockefeller Center now, and it's more like lobster rolls and stuff. But like that. But it was a high touch, multi course. Yeah, type exactly. So meal. Cornelius Gallagher, who is now the chef of Royal Caribbean, I believe he's still there, which is crazy to me that he's a chef of. of Why such is a, that crazy? 
because I know him. <laughs> what I, does that mean? I work for this guy who um, he was fresh off being a sous chef at Danielle. He got went. It. He got his first job at Oceana. He took the he took the role of chef at this relatively iconic restaurant. It was Midtown. Rick Moonen was the chef before that. Uh, who was a well-respected, you know, that's three generations of chefs before me or two generations before me. And, you know, he took over this, redid the whole kitchen, amazingly efficient kitchen design. I still look at that design. I'm like, wow, we can't believe how much we did out of that little kitchen. Uh, but there was no wasted steps. There was zero room for wasted steps. And you learned how to be super efficient, clean, organized. That's where I learned don't ever have a towel on your counter that's not folded. That's where I learned that apparently there's spots on a, 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 a shooter for a amuse-bouche, a, sh- a shot glass, that he can see that I can't see because he's so trained. And the time that I thought my cl- glasses were polished – I learned very quickly that it wasn't up to his standard, and he put his foot up so far up my ass <laughs> that I was scared to like. I would polish my shot glasses three times because yeah. I didn't want that wrath. Um, was it? I mean, you know, I can go on and on about stories there that we probably don't need time. We don't need to discuss. But it was it was a tyrannical ran kitchen. Um, there was one person in charge. It was his vision. He was a he was a technician. He was. I don't even know. It's robotic, mm. almost robotic mm. in his move. I'd never seen somebody plate food so perfectly, quickly, efficiently. Um, See, you know, you're telling me the story, and I have zero aspiration to ever be like that. You no, know? exactly. Which is a perfect example of there's just so much diversity, right? There. But it also shows just because you have talent doesn't mean you're going to be successful. Maybe as, as an owner, as a owner. Yeah, you know, we all know that. We all know that. It's so a what, very there's a, there's a lot of stories out there, and you know, for me as a chef early on, somehow I developed this mentality of I didn't want to I didn't want to be mediocre. And I had seen at that point, you know, spending three or four years in, in, in New York at that point, I'd worked for multiple chefs, super talented in the kitchen, right? But they were just a mess. They were just a mess. Like business wise, professionalism wise, like they were a hot mess. And I saw them with all that talent. And, you know, they got all the praise and accolades when they first sort of hit the scene. and But then they disappear. They just disappeared. And for me, in our industry, there's this – I always inv- – I had this vision. And it's amazing because I grew up on this big lake but uh, in Washington State. But I call it the lake of mediocrity. I might have read something one time and somebody said that. And I always envision myself sort of hovering, flying over that, gliding over that lake. And on the other side is success. But then there's this – massive span that chefs that we chefs have to sort of navigate in those five, six, seven, eight years that you go from a line cook to being a seasoned chef or owner, right? Yeah. Not talking about getting through two or three years. I'm talking about getting through five, six, seven, eight years and still being in a good spot. A lot of people can't get to the other side. When I think of the word chef, and this has probably transformed over time. What I think of a chef today isn't what I thought of a chef 10 years ago. But today when I think of a chef, I think of a leader. I think of somebody who can get in and can execute the same level of food that he, that he or she could do on their own, but doing it through other people, right? And I think that is what makes a chef. Is Yeah, can, you want to be a chef. Okay, you can cook. 
right? But can you do it through other people? Can you share your vision? Can you mm-hmm. can you echo your communicate? Standards? Can you create other leaders? It's all about communication, yeah. right? It all comes down to good communicating, and that's what some are greater than others. Like some don't like to talk, you know what I mean? But they get their point through somehow. You know, some are over communicators. There's so many different ways you can communicate. Sure, you can communicate with your actions. A lot of nonverbal communication, yeah. right? There's a lot of chefs who don't open their mouths, but when they do, it means something. Yeah, you know what I mean. And you pay attention. I've worked for those chefs. You know where you get a lot of leeway. That that that, that leash is pretty long, but when you know when you get outside your outside of where that he wants you to go. In this case, of he because I'm thinking about it. Uh, the one specifically, like he's going to yank you back really quickly, you know. So, being a chef, the title of the chef is his title, right? Like what you do with that title, that's that's up to you. Um, you know, there's there's chef is you can be a chef of a of a you know institutional kitchen like a hospital or something, a country club. You know, there's that whole side of things. Or you want to be, you know, you want to be somebody who's pushing the boundaries and evolving the the industry in a, in a way positively uh, through your actions as a leader, but also your actions as through your food, through your hospitality, through your dining room. Because today chefs aren't just in the kitchen, right? We're the face of a restaurant. Yeah. So even though there might be a partner involved on the front of the house side, we're being judged through the service. You know, we're being judged through the the host, you know, coming through the door, like because people are coming for the chef so often, not necessarily just the restaurant. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for us, the title of a chef, or for me at least, um, you know, ultimately you have to cook, be able to cook. Yeah. But being a great leader is fifty percent, maybe fifty one percent of your responsibility. I love it. Awesome stuff. So during this time, I think you're using um, somebody as an example who's going on. He's he's cooking for the the cruise line right now. Was it Caribbean? Cornelius Gallagher, yeah, yeah, so, Royal Caribbean. I, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. I don't know if he still is there. So what was this? Is a transformative moment for you. That's why we came here in the conversation. So what? How did this experience transform you? I my attention to detail went up. Two thousand percent. You know what I mean? It just yeah. like I learned that there's a reason why details are there. Yeah. As for us to make sure we How do those details translate to business? Oh I mean in everything. I mean detail oriented, you know, entrepreneurship is key, right? Like it doesn't matter if you're uh, CEO of a Fortune five hundred company or you're running one single little BYO in South Philadelphia. The more attention to detail you have, the greater chance of success you have. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. This is my, I think, one of my biggest weaknesses is attention to detail. I'm so bad. Really, at it. dude? I'm. I, I can listen. I mean, there's the the world gives us so many canvases through which for to a retired engage. pilot. Um, well, there's a reason why I'm not. Reti- I'm not retired. I'm resigned. <laughs> resigned. There's a reason resigned. why I resigned because it's <laughs> yeah. not my natural strength. You know, I'm like this sucks. I'm not good at this. Why am I? Putting my right. life, why am I giving right. myself this trajectory? But you just want to be detail oriented if you're a pilot. You know what I mean? You got to follow that checklist. I agree with that statement. You know what I mean? 
Absolutely. But that might have been the. And if you just don't want to shoot the shit all day, you should probably be a podcaster. (laughs) Right, right, right. But um, you know, yeah. But like, there's the thing. You don't know who you are until you know. You don't know who you are until you put yourself in uncomfortable positions. And it's through putting yourself in those uncomfortable positions that you realize where you belong. Yeah. Right. Right. Don't be afraid to get off the path if it's not right. But learn something from that experience. Right. So. Thinking about transformation. Wait, we actually, now's a great time to take a break and thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Look, I don't need to explain to you that restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and their staff have been working harder than ever. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. This is because it uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located or what are your hours? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Within the Pop Menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests hear and even send follow-up links via text message pop menu answering picks up your phone call 24 7 365 days a year allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most your guests in-house the time is now to prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering and for a limited time my listeners can get $100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month and learn more about pop menus, full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. So we're back and I want to get one more transformative part for you. The part where you, the, the, the experience you had to go through to get to the point where you're ready to be a partner. Well, like- I, I like I mentioned earlier, so you know, Teresa Italian specialties happened. Carbone restaurant is the next step. I'm gonna sort of you know I'm I'm tapped to run that restaurant, uh, help get it going. You know, I've opened multiple restaurants in New York City at that point, so I've been through that process, the critic cycle. You know, making sure that everything's perfect. You know, when the critics come in and all that. Um, I'm at that point. I'm a highly trained chef. Um, me, Rich, and Mario, we're all on the same page. We love what we do. We're, you know, we've spent hours, extracurricular hours, developing ourselves as a group, as a restaurant group, ready to take the next step. But like I said, I didn't feel like I was connecting with that food. Uh, didn't culturally, it wasn't, it, you're not Italian. It I'm not Italian, yeah. right? I'm actually Pennsylvania Dutch. Okay. So, and and real Dutch. My mom's from Amsterdam. Oh, cool. So I got the Pennsylvania Dutch, which are really German immigrants. That's where the Viking beard comes from. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Me and you are, <laughs> yeah. me and you are similar. I'm sure there are some Vikings that right. ra- raided my ancestors exactly. in Ireland. Exactly. So, yeah. so uh, you know, the, for me, it was at that point, I said, you know what? I just think I need to like suck it up, you know, put on my big boy pants, stop relying on other people to make myself comfortable, like stop being comfortable, right? I was very comfortable. I wanted to, I just knew that if I didn't sort of get out of their shadow, I would never truly be happy, right? 
I needed to have that feeling that I was on a precipice. If I took one step left or one step right, I was going to fall off a cliff. Like I wanted that, you know, that safety net to disappear and put myself out there and put myself in a position where I had to perform. Yeah. Like, or it was, it was me or failure. You know what I mean? Like show up or fail. And I wanted that to be who I was because that's what a lot of chefs have to go through. It's that, it's that transition is it's losing the training wheels. Yeah. Getting your sense of their own identity, being seen. I think this is goes back again. I always like to point to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, you know, we look at that like yes. right above security is being seen, being loved, being valued. You can be seen, you can be loved, you can feel like you have your purpose. But I think there's a part of us that wants to be recognized. Sometimes I think this industry does a really bad job at recognizing people for their work. You know, like maybe my peers see me. But does the greater world see my contribution to well, this? Well, you see what's group? on the plate, but you don't yeah. see what's behind the plate. Yeah, yeah. Is that, do you think that, that, were you feeling that? Do you think that's a trap that we fall into sometimes? Yeah, for sure. And like really, you know, everybody, you know, as you grow up, when you're, when you're 22 going to the industry, you think you're only, the only thing you want is to you have your own restaurant. That's the only goal you have. You ask a young cook, what do you want? What do you want out of this? Oh, I want to have my own restaurant. But then as you age, Right? Maybe you get a girlfriend, you get a steady relationship, um, you find somebody who actually put up with your hours and everything. You say, okay, let's get married. Okay, let's have children. As these things happen in the mat- natural maturation of yourself, some of your goals will change, right? Um, some of the, you know, you'll put more emphasis. A lot of people will be like, oh, you know what? I don't need to be a chef. I don't need to have my own restaurant. I want security, mm. right? I want that steadfast, you know, that paycheck those benefits for my young kid and my wife, like those things might be really important for you. And that's okay because let's face it, we need those people in the industry as well. Yeah. Guess what's more Not important. everybody, yeah. like you said, not everybody can be the next Ron Adria, the next Renee Rizepi. Yeah. So for me, it was that moment, that aha moment that said, you know what, Eli? Stop. Like stop, you know, like just just try it. You can always, I have great relationship. I never left a restaurant without having a, quality relationship with that chef mm. i've never had i don't burn bridges you know what i mean i always knew that it's a that, small industry you don't want it's a, too small yeah. you see what's done to other people second largest industry in the world small industry when it comes to relationships and especially at high-end fine dining restaurants yeah. you know what i mean because well, it's the cream of the crop it is and you know and it's the expectation is different so for me i could always fall back i knew i could always fall back and so you know, I talked to them, you know, about, you know, leaving the company and, you know, they were like, you know, okay, well, you know, we can figure this out. And I just said, listen, guys, I love, I love these guys like a brother. You know, Rich just opened, reopened Teresi yesterday and we're texting about it because he knows how intimately involved I was with that, you know, from the, from pretty early on. So I just had, I had to try it. Like I had to try it for my own peace of mind. So um, there's there's a headhunter in the industry, Alfred Erlek. He's he called him the kitchen maestro. He has placed many of the best chefs all around the country. Real quick, I'm curious. When you said you had to try it, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm understanding that it is opening your own restaurant or being a partner. Being an executive chef. Being the exa- okay, executive cool. chef. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to- Running your own kitchen. Running my own kitchen, full control, creative control over that, right? So yeah. the pivotal moment for me is getting back to that was- when I decided, you know what, I need to strike off my own, and I contacted this headhunter, um, recruiter, however you want to call him, and I I 
he put me in another position already in New York before I worked at Tracy at Cause Lever. And I said, listen, I'm ready to strike off on my own. I'm ready for executive chef position. I want to have it truly my own kitchen. Uh, and uh, at that point, Ellen, who, in, who was in Philadelphia, had also contacted him. I spent, like I said, eight or nine years at that point in New York. I had never been to Philadelphia. I never, I never even thought to go to Philadelphia. I knew a couple things about it. Obviously, Rocky the movie, the yada, you know, the birthplace of democracy. But when you're living and working in Manhattan or in New York City, you don't have time to focus on, especially in our industry. Like we're working, like our days off, we're doing our one day off a week, we're doing laundry. You know what I mean? Like you're so focused on your, yeah, you're you paying know, your bills, you're doing you laundry, get, you're right? Making, yeah, you make your rent, you're, right? You're working on your life. Right, you're yeah. working to you know basically have one day off a week and and kind of get your shit together and go back to work. You're, so that's and that's why you're there. That's why you that's why you sacrifice. That's why you're in a uh, 800 square foot studio with two people because you're never you're never at home other than to sleep. Yeah, you know what I mean. So you're always working. If you're not working, you're probably partying, uh, and then you do it all over again. And that's why New York is such a beautiful thing. The best of the best are there. The mentality's there. Everybody's there for the same reason, to excel at, at their position of whatever industry they're in, right? So Ellen, we talk. She jokes all the time. She goes, yeah, I called Eli to interview him, and she, I ended up interviewing her, right? Because I'm like, why the fuck do I want to go to Philadelphia? You know what I mean? Like, I'm in, I'm in New York, like, I want to be in New York City. I want to be. I want to make my name here. But the more and more I thought about it, at the time I had a one one year old son. Um, wasn't even one yet, and you know I talked about it with my wife at the time, and we're now divorced. But at the time, it was an opportunity. Okay, let's try it out. Why not? Right? We can always come back. I didn't realize that Philadelphia is an hour and ten minutes on the train. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I had no idea. I thought it was like three hours, three and a half hours. Like it's so so short. I mean, I was so in New York before this. Like I was like, I need to do this circuit more. You know, it's you barely to- enough time to get your laptop turned on. Yeah, check your emails. Exactly. Answer some people. Like you know, right, it's, it's- right, write some new recipes. Or you know what I mean? Like work on a couple. You know, I'd sit there and I always drew out my food before I, I would think about it. I would draw it. Right. Uh, I would doodle. And I'd be on the train trying to like doodle a dish. Like I could give it to my chef de cuisine to like get the ingredient, and then you know bump it around. You yeah, know? it's like it never really worked out very well. But yeah, or it gets it, the point across. You know, people need to you have to move for people. Yeah, sometimes. yeah, it's not the best work, but it's still it's better than driving. You know, in my like, opinion. You, listen, when that train gets to Philadelphia, it empties. Yeah, and that's people coming from New York to Philly. Yeah, and Philly going to New York. Yeah, like these two cities are really connected. And you'd be surprised how many people commute on a daily basis between the two cities. Yeah. It's really crazy. But people like that hour and 15 minutes of just peaceful commuting, you know, whether it's like you're listening to podcasts, whatever you're doing. What is that? Like, it's like $20, $30, or maybe it's a little more. Nah, it's probably a little bit more than that, depending 40, on which one you're on. Minutes. I should know. I, I took the Right. I think it's though. like if you're on the regional line, it's like $45, or at least it was. I have no idea what it is. Is that coach now. or business? What's that? Were you taking coach or business? Oh, for me, it was, yeah, it's coach, which is fine. Like, yeah. It's, it was still nice, but you know, I really enjoyed it. I didn't mind it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, so no traffic, right? <laughs> so you know, we realize it. I come down here, talk to Ellen. She's she she takes me to a few places around town. 
Um, at that time, Greg Vernick, who's now one of the best chefs here in Philadelphia, uh, Vernick Food and Drink, and he has Vernick Fish. He had just come down. He was he was a corporate guy for John George. So he had been to a bunch of different places all over the country. He's from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, across the river. And, you know, his him and his his family said, let's open a restaurant here. He's doing fantastic. One of the best restaurants in Philly, hands down. Talk about consistency. I mean, this guy is like consistency squared. So uh, at that time, also Pete Serpico, uh, who's a chef here in Philadelphia, who was the uh, chef de cuisine for David Chang at uh, Momofuku Co., uh, from the very beginning when Co first started. And he's somebody who I worked with in New York City at a restaurant on the Upper East Side called Jovia. That was a short-lived restaurant. So I knew Pete. Um, I had, I had, you know, I knew Mark Vetri, of course. Uh, I'd heard of a couple of restaurants like Lebec Finn, which was like a famous French restaurant. You know, like there was, you know, Philadelphia had a small reputation, but at that point I could see there's this resurgence or not even resurgence, like a, the beginning of something good happening in Philly, right? So I said, you know what? Let's give it a try. Worst comes to worst, we go back to New York. I have five people I could call and get a job tomorrow, right? So we did it. And what was cool, because what what Teresi was doing in New York that really made it special was the fact that they were celebrating New York food, right? So they would do, it was Italian food, but done through the prism of New York City. So each neighborhood, right? So we'd have like a Jamaican beef patty ragu with um, a turmeric yellow cavatelli, which was a Jamaican beef patty, right? Like that was sort of ubiquitous around uh, New York and especially in Queens, uh, Jamaican Queens. Um, you know, we would have food inspired by uh, the halal cart, Right, like we would do a lamb halal dish that was with red and white sauce. You know that that we all the halal um, uh, gyro carts around the city. You know, we would do food that was inspired by Chinatown. We do food that's inspired by Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. We do, you know, we do food that was that was, new, that was inspired by Frank Sinatra. You know, uh, hip hop. You know, like we did food that was a dish about Coach. Leather, because Coach also has a um, – the reason why they sort of became who they were is because they had a sheep farm, you know, and they had all this extra leather. And you know what I mean? So that we found all these stories. We would go into the New York City library, and they would there's a special room you have to go to, and you have to make an appointment. And we'd go in there, and they'd pull out all these menus from the early 1900s, right? You have to go in there, and you have to wear gloves while you touch them. That's crazy. And you're in this old room – old books room so the smell is like that i love that smell. it's that musty mm. like like smells like you're in an old library in like your elementary school or something yeah, in the caverns of you know and we'd go in there and we'd find inspiration in those recipes and those stories and you know it was like it was almost like we were it's almost like an anthropology Anthropological. Anthropological. Thank I struggle you. with that word all the anthropological, time. I love anthropology. You know what I mean? Like yeah. a study of of food and people in New York City over the times. And, you know, there's no bigger melting pot than New York City, right? Oh, yeah. So you you can look any direction and find inspiration there. So that's what really what set Teresi apart from any other restaurant in New York. That's why it became this phenomenon, this little tiny restaurant 
that people would line up at 4 p.m. to put their name down, first come, first serve, no reservations. And it just became this phenomenon. And I witnessed it for the first seven months from afar. And they were like, Eli, we need you. You know, come here. And I took a pay cut. You know, I, I said, okay, guys, like, I'm in it. But, you know, this is a reciprocal relationship. It's not me just working for you. Um, but the beauty of that was is that by seeing that restaurant evolve and being a part of it, it changed my mentality. Because if you are able to cook with a purpose, mm. it already, like, two X's you. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, because if you have a story to tell in that food, like, let's, let's face it, right? You have all of our senses. We walk into a restaurant. Oh, it looks so beautiful. Oh, it smells so great. Oh, it sounds so so energetic. You get the feel, the vibe, right? Uh, oh, it tastes so good. The drinks taste so good. Everything tastes great. But if you can touch on that sixth sense of, like, the aha moment, it's, that, it's, a, it's the final scene in Ratatouille, right? The, show, the movie Ratatouille where the old jaded critic tastes something that his mother made him and it's like it takes him back to that moment because you know our smell our olfactory right it goes through our memory bank as we smell things and we can taste things and it can bring you back it's omnipresent through and your it body. can tell it's, your yeah, story it's not just the flavor it's, right it's the the trigger if you can make a dish that makes people go oh oh yeah yeah uh, oh yeah uh, you got them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, they're, they're, you're on the hook. Mm. They are yours for life. Yeah. How many how many meals have you had over the years that you could be like, ah, I had a really good meal there, but I, I couldn't tell you one dish. One of my favorite things to eat is lumpy garlic mashed potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> because it there reminds me of my grandma. There you go. Because I, re- I remember I complimented it's nostalgia. her once. Yeah, I complimented her on her, pota- her mash. I was like, I love your mashy, your lumpy mashed potatoes. But she was also like 86, and they weren't meant to be lumpy. So right, like, that's all the effort me? she got. Yeah. <laughs> that's all and you I was get. like, what? I was like, they're great. She gave up halfway through. <laughs> <Yeah. you know? laughs> but for me, it was the best thing ever because it was a memory tied to her. You know? Absolutely. So, that, that, so when you have yeah. those, it's a trigger for you. Yeah. It's it's calming. It's it's like oh, you can breathe, you know. And so I realized that food can also be a study of history. Yeah. In that moment, mm. and I saw what the people did when they they had that, and the coin dropped. You know, the nickel dropped, and they're like, oh, I get it. So what I was able to do, and the, really the number one reason why I took a job in Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, is because my family's heritage is right here. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I had no association with Pennsylvania other than the old book that the cover was falling off that was our family's history, our ancestral history, that I'm a Marine that was in our family for years, dating back to the 1600s. Like we could see, you know, where some of the first people uh, that immigrated from, you know, the northern part of Germany as prosecuted religious Pennsylvania Dutch because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't, um, they couldn't uh, uh, freely express their religious um, beliefs, and the free world at that point. This is before the country was even. This is still when it's under British rule. Was a place where you could come and have freedom of all those things, right? So here was. They came over as I think Kolb was the was the original version of my name, our, our family's last name. Then it sort of evolved over the years into Kolb. Um, I remember reading this book as a young age and like you know hearing about. I remember there's one story that stuck with me about 
you know, probably great, 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 yeah. uh, you know, uncle or whatever, uh, died after his arm was um, crushed in a apple cider. Oh, man. You know what I mean? Like apple press. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't want to get like a any any like injury back then would have. Oh yeah, like yeah. A chance of you yeah. know. So the medicine wasn't there. Right. So you know, like that type of thing. And but that's only you know. I never thought twice about that. But when I got here and sort of my viewpoint that I was just at Teresa, I was like, you know what? I can apply my own personal story, my family's history here. My grandparents on my father's side grew up here. And they moved to Buffalo, New York, where they, my dad was born and raised, and then eventually out west as well. Just keep going west. Right. Yeah. Exactly, right? So that was what people want to do. They want to explore the west. So, so you wanted to like make food that explored your history, that told your story. Selfishly, I was able to explore my own personal, my family's own personal history and journey through Pennsylvania cuisine. So I started looking, I started applying the same techniques that we were using at, at Teresi. I'd look up, you know, What's what's Philadelphia food? What are some of the 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 what what are some defining um, you know uh, things in Philadelphia that that make Philadelphia cuisine what it is? What is Pennsylvania cuisine? What is Pennsylvania Dutch cuisine? What is hogma? Right? What are what's a stuffed? What can we do with a stuffed pig stomach? Right? Mm. Like Pennsylvania Dutch cuisine is not pretty <laughs> i mean it is sustenance so is this what you're trying to do with fork was this the, the vision you have for fork? right so when i got to the fork i you know i told ellen like you know here's what i want to explore like everybody in philadelphia looked outward at that point just like a tree just like in new york city everybody looked outward people come to restaurants to escape something right they want to be transplant they want to be trans um transported transported i'm yeah. like transformed yeah. uh they want to be transported to France. They want to be transported to Rome. They want to be transported to Hong Kong when they enter a restaurant, yeah. right? Where Teresa was like, no, like we're going to be like, we're proud. We're putting a stake in the ground. We're saying, you know what? We are New York. Yeah. Like, don't forget about our own story. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. Where I said, okay, I can do the same thing here. Nobody had done that before. Nobody had even looked at Pennsylvania history as a opportunity to influence their menu. Yeah. It was always escape that. Like, we're not proud of our history here almost. But from an outsider, I was like, whoa, there's a lot of rich stuff here. You know, you had a great Jewish story here. You have a great Italian story here. You have a great Latino story here. You know, of, of you know, because, you know, the Irish, like all these different ways of immigrants, like each one of them brought their own unique style and, and thought process when it comes to food. So... That's what it was. And I yeah. really, my opening menu was really a story about that. And you opened to great accolades. You were a nominee oh, yeah, for James Beard 2015. Was it best new restaurant or best chef? So, yeah. So, uh, 2015. Was it 14? Yeah, 2015, I think it was nominated for Best Chef Atlantic. So you, yeah, you, you joined Ellen, forces with Ellen in, in 2012. And um, I know. Things took a turn in 2015, but what was that? What were those three years like? Like, what were the challenges you had as a first time, you know, leading a kitchen, executive chef, your kitchen? I tell you what, I couldn't have, I couldn't have written it better for myself. I literally couldn't have written it. What do you mean by that? I could not have even ever imagined how almost easy it seemed to do what I was doing, what I loved, and how easily people were accepting it. Yeah, I think this is one of the big lessons I learned too. Don't. Do, don't chase trends. Don't chase what other people are doing. You will not have the 
you'll you won't have the stamina the the passion you'll need to show up every day to do that thing it has to be an extension of you it Absolutely. has to be almost and guess what sometimes your vision your extension of you might not work but at least you're being honest to yourself at least you know but um i think i don't know what, what are your thoughts of what i'm saying no i mean listen if you chase trends or you want to be like the next like oh i want to open a smoothie shop because i see everybody doing smoothies or i want to open up a Right. You know what I mean? Whatever it is, like you can be successful, but you're never going to be a change maker, difference maker. You know what I mean? And for me, that that's, I worked for chefs who changed the game Mm. and I wanted to be one of those chefs. Like I wanted to be someone who wanted, that made a difference, that made a mark on the industry in a positive way. And for me, this was a way that I was able to do that in Philadelphia. And it was, I was I was so embraced. You know, Philadelphia's a proud city. You know how many New York chefs would come down thinking they were going to be successful? And then, like, a year later, they're Chewed licking their wounds yeah. and, you know, their tail between their legs and go back to New York. Happens all the time. And honestly, Philadelphia people don't like New York. It's, we're like, it's like a little, it's like the little brother or big brother syndrome. Yeah. Right? Like, we get overlooked. Right? It's, it's, always, it's always Boston, New York, D.C., and Philadelphia is just like a blip on the radar, you know, Amtrak stop. You know what I mean? So, you know, they have that chip on their shoulders. So I came into Philadelphia with no preconceived notion of that I was going to kill it. Like I, I just I, – I knew that I had to put my effort – I had to put effort in. I had to be smart. I knew that me exploring my roots was kind of like a little – like an in, almost like a safety net a little bit. And I loved it. Like again, I love doing that. Like that what was, was the biggest challenge for you? Ugh. I don't know. I don't know if I had a challenge, to be honest. Um a big part of it was also the fact that Ellen hired me. And okay. El- Ellen Yin is a really well respected uh, restaurant owner yeah. in in Philadelphia at the time. And you know, we just went to Chicago last year. Uh, for the James Beard Awards, and she was up for um, Restaurant Tour of the Year, mm. national. You know what I mean? So it just shows to the level of, you know, of where she was when we first met, um, because she was already, even though she only had one restaurant, she was really well respected. That restaurant was 15 years by the time we even got there. Did you, when you partnered with her, when you came in as the executive chef, were you getting equity in the business? Was this something? No, that no. Okay. I mean, I, I told her very on, like early on. I said, listen, I'm not in it just to be an employee. Like I'm looking to grow, you know, not only be a chef but a partner. Chef partner. You know, that this was what I bring goal. to the table. My I wanted to have a restaurant group. Like it was. It I don't was want a paycheck. This I was not like her interviewing me. It's like you're hired. It was. This was very much a long conversation. Yeah. Right. This like we were partner. dating. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So early on, we I think we both did our due diligence, making sure that we were. We both felt like we were swimming in the right direction. So I think that's a big thing that people have to take into consideration. I like I like the approach that you took. Is like, hey, like I, I can't do this by myself. I'm not a CFO. I'm not like I'm not an accountant. I'm not a marketer. I'm not any of those things. Um, I'm maybe I don't. Maybe you're not even an operations person. Are you an operation? Like who knows? But what does Ellen bring to the table? Like why did she compliment you, or why does she compliment you to this day? Well, one of the one of the most renowned business schools in the in in the world is the Wharton School of Business, which is an extension of the University of Pennsylvania, which is Ivy League school. Uh, people come from all over the world to go to UPenn. Um, it is an amazing school, and and Philadelphia is where it is. 
she's a Wharton grad. Like she's already super smart. Her dad was like a economics uh, guy who they had immigrated in from China. Um, so she was our first generation um, Chinese American. So she had that pressure. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, she did all the things she was supposed to. Uh, she realized early on, she started bartending after college and she loved it. She loved the hospitality of it, right? So even though in her culture, owning a restaurant is not looked at as, you know, it's something. The same pedigree as being a doctor or an or, economics <laughs> yeah. professor or whatever, an economist, it was, you know, what she wanted to do. And she worked her way up and, you know, eventually she opened a restaurant and, you know, my story starts with her in 2012. I came down for the 200, uh, sorry, I came down for the 15th anniversary of Fork Restaurant. And we said, all right, we're going to close the restaurant. We're going to redo it. We're going to, you know, make the place more updated. It was a little dated by that time, 15 years. Um, you know, that was a time when people were taking tablecloths off, off um, tables and sort of rethinking the fine dining experience. And we wanted to do that, and we relaunched it, whole new menu, whole new direction, uh, and that was it. The rest is history. Uh, within a year later, we were re- we were opening up High Street, so we were not only did we get Fork completely re uh, relaunched with this whole new level of respect within the industry, um, something that was I brought to Fork outside of my own sort of skills and being the chef there is that because I'd worked for these great people in New York, I was always, I was already on the radar of a lot of these publications, food and wine magazine, like Bon Appetit. Like these people came into Teresi all the yeah. time. Like that's a cool thing. To I think. knew them on a first name basis. So, and that's the great thing about living in New York. Well, yeah. And you brought more than in your skill set and your talent, you brought your reputation. Right. And that brings money. Even though I was never the, executive chef, single executive chef of a restaurant. I was in the right circles. circles. Networks. Yeah. Networks. You, were, you yeah. were tying your brand to successful brands. Right. Yeah. So which gave me, um, and I didn't really even think about that early on, but I saw how it kind of helped. I mean, that's what banks are doing. Like, when banks are investing in people, they're not investing in your vision. They're investing in the Reputation, pony. Yeah. yeah. Like where have you been? Can you, is there evidence proof to show me that you're a good investment? And I think that's kind of how media works. Too. Yes. Are you like, you know, and it's, it's a lot of politics, you know? Yeah, for um, sure. The, for the truth of it. But I mean, there's also, there's something to be said about that. Yeah. So, you know, it, it didn't take long uh, before, you know, the, the sort of, Local accolades kind of rolled through and the national ones started coming and, you know, opening up High Street, like Bon Appetit named it, uh, you know, the top 10 of that, of 2014 of new restaurants, um, that, you know, nationally. And, you know, like we were, we were like, all cylinders were going. Like I had an amazing team. I had sous chefs on my team that were going to be future industry leaders. Um, you know, it was, what was that transition of being the, the helm of the kitchen from going to work for others and executing other people's vision to having your own vision and having the other people to execute it? What was that like for you? Well, for me, it was a very natural transition. Like, even though I hadn't been the executive chef of restaurants, I had been a leadership kitchen. I had been a CDC in multiple restaurants. I was leading it. I've always, you're always executing a vision. Now you're just executing your own. vision, Right. Like leadership was a sort of a natural thing for me. I've never shied away from it. I always looked, I grew up playing sports, 
team sports, we all know like you, you know everybody on the team, no matter um, you know if you're the last guy on the bench, plays a role in the success. They're a link of in that, the chain, yeah. right? So I sort of had that mentality early on. So you can apply that same mentality to running a kitchen. Yeah. So where was your business in 2015? Where was the High Street Hospitality Group at this point? Right. So 2015, we had. I had we successfully relaunched Fork. We set up High Street uh, High Street uh, on Market, which was an all-day uh, sort of really sort of groundbreaking restaurant in the sense that no nobody had nobody with a pedigree like mine had ever focused on an all-day cafe. Yeah, you know what I mean. I just love that sandwiches were in my blood. Uh, I, I ate sandwiches for breakfast growing up. I was never like cereal or pancakes. Give me a tuna fish sandwich in the morning. I am happy. Yeah. Like my mom would have a ham and cheese sandwich ready for me in the morning before I went to school. You know Throw what I mean? Egg in there. Why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, egg sandwich. I like mustard on my egg sandwich. Yeah. Like for me, like anything between two slices of bread, I'm pretty happy I can't with buy it. That. <laughs> yeah. So like High Street was my dream restaurant. Mm. High Street was the restaurant that, that I had in my, in my mind of, you know, a sandwich shop during the day, much like Teresi. That's why I really, I love Teresi's concept because that's what it, how it started. Um, you know, sandwich shop during the day uh, and then at nighttime really, you know, bread and fermentation and, and beer and wine and cheese. Like the whole idea of fermentation, that was kind of like when fermentation was, was sort of just starting to like bubble up here and there. Um, and that's really what High Street was. We wanted to sort of focus on naturally beautiful things. Uh, and then from there, we opened up a kitchen in Rittenhouse Square, which is like the Tony part of the na- of Philadelphia where all the money is. Uh, we partnered with a, a local uh, hotelier. And we we have a place there called A Kitchen. It's called A Dot Kitchen, if anybody wants to look it up. Uh, we have a great chef there now, still running it. This is going, you know, it's eight years ago. And from there, we, we started setting our sights back on New York because we had seen sort of the national and local and even New York crowd really accepting what we do. A lot of people, you know, I said Philadelphia and New York are very connected and, you know, really quickly all of a sudden people are like, oh man, we'd love to get High Street in a hotel. This is the hotel we're doing. You know, High Street would be so great here. High Street, would be, you know. Yeah, High Street hoagies too that come after 2015. Yeah, so that's actually a more recent thing where okay. we're, where we're um, rebranded our high street provisions up in uh, on the UPenn campus. Okay, so but this is all bef- after 2015. So this, no, so it's uh, high street. High street was in 2013. Got it. Uh, so at this point, you had, you had 2014. Th- a kitchen was got it. Um, so within the first three years, uh, two and a half years of me being here, we we either relaunched or opened. Uh, three restaurants. And in High Street in Hudson was the the restaurant that you were in the process of opening. Yeah. So we've seen the success of High Street. Uh, there was nothing else like it, even in the New York City market. We saw that we felt like we were in a good spot. We were, we were on a roll, right? The momentum in our company was strong. Uh, we signed the lease, you know, after, after shopping around in New York City, we signed a lease um, in March of 2015. We hadn't even started construction yet. You know, we were shooting for June. You know, we you, know, you get those three months of you know planning and architectural drawings and you know design drawings and all that. And one day I was in New York. Sorry, one day I was in Philadelphia. 
I was living in New York at the time. My wife's job hadn't transferred like we thought. So I was in between the cities. So I was commuting a lot on yeah. this train back and forth. Um, and then, you know, one day um, everything changed. Mm. What exactly happened? So it was May 12th, 2015. It was a warm day. I had come down to Philadelphia to cook for a group of ladies. Uh, I had recently been named, I think it was like 40 under 40 in yeah. Philadelphia or something like that. Yeah. And there was this group of ladies, like eight of them or 10 of them or something that was on this list as well. They contacted me and said, hey, we'd love to get all the women on this list together. Would you mind cooking us a nice lunch? Fork wasn't open for lunch. But I said, you know what? I'm going to come down. I'm going to make these ladies feel really important. I say come down, like, I think it was a day that I, I, spent, I spent like three days in Philadelphia at that point, And then I was focusing on two days up in New York, getting the place open. So I came down on one of the off days, um, cooked this lunch. I stuck around for dinner service. Um, usually I would be in, at dinner service until, you know, 1030. I think there's always an 1101 train I would take. So I'd always shoot to take that train back to New York. And... But this day being sort of one-off, and I always tell people this story because, you know, something that chefs do when we open up restaurants, every time I open a restaurant, I put on 10, 15 pounds. Yeah. Because I was always, I'm only focusing on tasting everything, (laughs) right? And you're only focused on that. Such a heavy lift. And, you know, we just, uh, you know, we finally got a kitchen up to a good spot. And when you're doing three different restaurants, you're always tasting food. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, all right, chef, I'm coming in between two and three. I need to taste every dish on the menu type thing, right? And we taste everything. We sit down. We adjust it, et cetera, et cetera. Or new menu, new menu dishes. All right, all right. They have four menu dish, new menus, items that they want to put on the menu. All right, have them ready. I'll be there between one and one thirty. Just have them ready. We'll sit down. We'll taste everything. So you're always putting food in your mouth. And I knew from my own, for my own body, my health, and my body. I knew when I was getting out of shape, when I was putting too much food. I wasn't yeah. putting the time in. So I had just started I had just finished the training for CrossFit. Got it. Okay. So the next morning on May twelfth, uh, the next so it would have been May thirteenth, I was officially starting my first CrossFit exercise group. Okay. And so I was down in Philadelphia for that that one off little luncheon I did. I was like, you know what, guys? I got through service. It was, I think it was like Tuesday night. It wasn't yep. that busy or anything. So like by 9 p.m., I was like, all right, 8.30. I was like, all right, guys, I'm going to head back. So got a ticket for the uh, 9.05 train leaving Philadelphia. Never really take that one. I've taken it a few times. It was a very busy. That's, like People are commuting from all over yeah. the place then. So it's typically a busier train. Um, I always like the, the evening commute home. So I close my eyes. I can relax. Yeah. You know, quiet car. Take a little nap. Yeah. Quiet car. Always in the quiet car. So, like any other night, get on the train. Um, I'm texting some people. You know, the train starts moving. Um, texting some people, some friends, just catching up on things. Um, about probably seven, eight minutes into the, into the journey, you know, I put my phone down, just, you know, sit back, relax. Um, it was the train car was actually very the train was actually very quiet for a nine o'clock train. It wasn't very busy. Lots of room. I actually got the the double seat where this you know people like groups can sit and across from look each other. For, across yeah. from each other. So I had you know put my legs up on there. Nice. You know, there's nobody around me. Just chill. There wasn't people on the other side of me. I think there was like 15 people ended up being in that train car that night. 
uh, specifically. So nine minutes in, I feel a rumble. Like you always train always to rumble, yeah, and creaks and cracks, you know. Yeah. But this was like a big one, and this all happened in the blink of an eye. I can imagine. But thinking back, you can, your brain sort of slow mos it, and I remember thinking like that was big, strange. And I always had this feeling like I always had this. I always sat in reverse of a train that was going because I always felt if there's a collision, it's your, you're not going to right, right. You're not going to go and smash your face against the next yeah. chair. You're gonna you're going you're gonna to have some cushion right, there, some support, right? Yeah. Just basic sort of thinking, right? Physics. I think now's a good time to take a break to thank our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. All right, we're back. Um, you're on the train. You feel you feel a shake. Yeah, so there's a big shudder, right? And then all of a sudden, before I know it, I'm airborne. Don't have time to even think about it, right? I'm airborne. I know the train is crashing. Something just went wrong. What or, actually made the train crash? The... Engineer driving the train, thought he was on a straightaway, accelerated to 108 <sighs> miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour curve. Oh my gosh. Just barely outside Philadelphia in the Port Richmond neighborhood, on the outskirts of Philadelphia, still in, technically in Philadelphia. Kind of an industrial area. Yeah. And I'm airborne. Only thought that goes through my head is this is it. That's all. Like, I thought I was dead. Um, end up not dying. Train comes to a crashing halt. It's on its side. Um, little to me, uh, you know, knowledge to me that the business car, business class car right in front had just gotten opened up like a soda can. Eight people end up dying in that car right in front of me. I'm the closest I that I'm the closest you can get to being in the business car without being in the business car. So I'm right behind it. I'm literally the, the first seats behind the business car. 
And the I wake up. I'm not. I don't even wake up. I'm. I'm conscious the whole thing. I was wondering if you were conscious. If you yeah. Got so it comes to a halt. I flew up in the air, turned ninety degrees to my left, like counterclockwise, and my neck smashed directly into the luggage rack mm. across from me. Okay, so I'm 108 miles an hour. You're in a train. Your your body is traveling 108 miles an hour. Yeah. The train stops. Your body's still going. Boom. Yeah. Right? It feels and sounds like somebody just turned an amplifier up to 11 on a get, and they had an electric guitar and they just, and they just like crushed the chords. Like, like just imagine, like almost like Back to the Future where like um, Marty like is in front of that huge speaker and he just like touches it and blows them back into the shelving. Like that, that noise went through my body. Like I felt it, electric shock. Okay, yeah, through my body, I fall. Whatever luggage rack and all that falls on top of me. I go to get up or push up. I Damn. got nothing. Oh. I got nothing. What's going through your mind at this point? Do you remember? Yeah, I'm paralyzed. You, is that is that what you're thinking? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm like immediately, it's like I hit my neck. I can't get up. Oh my god! Spinal cord injury, right? Like I knew somebody with spinal cord injury. Like it wasn't foreign to me. So I go to get up. I can't. I hear other people like dealing with their issues. People are tore up. People's faces are bleeding. Um, I go to yell help, can't. but I can't because your diaphragm. Right. So immediately, that diaphragm that allows us to project our voice and yell. Yeah. That muscle, I don't have anymore. Oh my gosh! So I'm like, help, you know, help. Yeah, you know, yelling as loud as I can, but it's, and finally somebody's like, hello, like you know, you can breathe. I can breathe shallowly. Got it. Okay. A lot of people with my injury level will immediately have they can't breathe. Yeah. Like they don't like their diaphragm doesn't work. Miraculously, my diaphragm worked a little bit enough. Mm. I never had to go on a ventilator. Finally, somebody hears me. They're like, ma'am, somebody will, we hear you, ma'am. Like, somebody will, and I'm like, I'm not a ma'am, I'm a dude. But my voice sounds like so high-pitched and barely audible that they think I'm a, a woman. Yeah. Right? And I'm like, no, like, my name's Eli. I start telling them who I am. I'm a chef, Fork Restaurant. Because I know, like, you know, people Maybe know right. Fork Restaurant. Yeah. And if they're from Philadelphia, they probably know it. Like, you know, call my call my business partner or call my wife. Like, you know, like, and they're everybody else is dealing with their own stuff. Like, one guy's remember him saying, like, specifically, like, I'm sorry, I lost my glasses. I got blood all over my eyes. I can't see anything. Like, people are trying to help lift, but they can't. Like, you know, people are. And there's only, like I said, there's only twelve or fifteen people in this quiet car that night. There's like over a hundred people on the train, though, right? Over like three hundred, I think, four hundred people are on the train. Uh, there's over 200 and something lawsuits, um, injury suits after the after the in the aftermath. So, long story short, I break my neck. Immediately, everything stops. My career, my fa- everything stops. Um, your focus is on on healing. Um, you know, our business is in like dire straits now. We're supposed to open this restaurant, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah. 
that was that was really the start of a new journey, a new focus that I had no choice to focus on. So immediately what's going through my mind hearing you tell the story is you must be thinking about my career. Like at what point are you thinking? I'm like, am I okay? Like, like at what point do you start thinking to myself, what the fuck am I going to do with my life? Like, Oh, it's almost, it imme- it's almost it immediately. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it, I would say the number one thing is like be a father to my son, hmm. you know, like the dreams being a father, you know, throwing the ball around, kicking the ball around, doing all the things that I had already sort of put in the bank of, you know, being excited about being a, a new dad. Um, of course, it's your career. It's your ability to uh, like be able to do provide do. for your family, yeah. right? People to depend on you. And you know, my level of injury is high. Like I'm a I'm a C four five, which means my cervical vertebrae, fourth and fifth vertebrae, if you count down from your top of your skull or the bottom of your skull down, is pretty much your vertebrae. And each of those vertebrae, each level represents a certain amount of function that your body's able to do. So if you're a high-level cervical injury like myself, you immediately be called your quadriplegic. Yeah. So all four limbs, quad, right, plegic, paralyzed. So for me, I didn't have the use of my hands anymore. I was going to say because I, I remember reading that, but you, you mean – I can use – listen, I can use my arms. My yeah. arms work to a certain extent. They mm-hmm. work – I'm very weak, um, but – I, I'm able to move my arms, but I can't grab things. Right? I can't physically grab mm. something. Mm. And that's the opposable thumb kind of separates for us primates from every other but a, species in the world. And a chef. I mean, and a chef. I would also argue you still got your frontal lobe, so that you got that going for you, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't think any brain damage happened. That could be, uh, that could be argued, <laughs> argued maybe. But the, uh, the, you know, my, all my extremities are, 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 are taken away. Yeah. But, and you're you are literally put back to an infant position in life. If, you can't yeah. feed yourself. You can't walk. All you can do is basically whine and make noise. So I mean, at what point did you get the like the news? I mean, you knew pretty immediately that you know you got the news, right? But at what point did the hospital say this is this is the reality? This is what this is what you're. I mean, is? I think it was pretty. Um, I, I'm always I always consider myself a realist mm-hmm. um i like to think i'm op i i'm i'm optimistic and i i want the right things i hope the right things are going to happen in life but i'm also a realist i think very early on even if they would have said oh yeah you have great chances of something which they never did of course um you know surviving or re- regaining um you know, they never painted that picture for me because they don't. They, doctors will never, you know, try to give you false hope, or at least they shouldn't. And I, I knew, if, you know, that I think I was pretty much done. So how does? I mean, obviously, we got, this is a business podcast, right? We're here to talk about your you and your journey and your business advice. And this is like this. This is a really unique. You know, you're providing a unique experience for us. Not everybody I talk to goes through such a traumatic physical experience where they're literally their money maker. You know, it's more than just your physical abilities, your, it's your knowledge yeah. and your ability to lead. It's, it's so much more than your physically ab- – because once you become an executive chef and a, a restaurateur, you really rely so much on working through people anyway. Right? Yeah, you're not, you're not the one exactly. cooking the food anymore. But at the same time, like, it's hard to learn and, and, and experience 
push the envelope with your skill set and your passion. I mean, this is the thing that you love to do. It's your passion being stripped away from you, not being able to experience the right. food. You know, uh, the way I equate it, people always say, "Well, you can do so much. You scare your mind, right?" I do. Like I have that. I can still rely on that. My mind has become more powerful since then because you have to rely, on, to it. rely on it. Yeah. It's like if you lose your sight, typically they say you become more attuned to your auditory yeah. um, surroundings. Yeah. And it's true. You do because I have to explain things to somebody. Try explaining to somebody how you want a specific knife cut mm. and how you want them to hold the knife and how you want them to to gradually do something versus show them. It's a whole other ball game. I bet. It's a, frust- it's a ball of frustration for both people, for all people involved. They're getting frustrated. I'm getting frustrated. I just want to grab the knife and do it myself and show them, right? Yeah. And I can't. So what were the what was the evolution of frustration for you? First, like you know, you get the news, like where are you, like when you're in the, you're in the hospital, you get like you kind of come to terms with the rest of your life, right? Uh, I'm assuming you weren't going back to work immediately. You know, you probably didn't have much involvement with the restaurant for a few months, I would imagine at least. Yeah, so I was in the hospital for almost six months. Yeah, but we were opening a restaurant, and yeah. my partner and I decided to go forward with wow. New York City restaurant. Wow. So here we are opening a restaurant in New York Tenacity, City. Dude. Um, you know, it was supposed to be open in like June. We ended up opening it in like December, uh, not June. Sorry, it was open like September, and we ended up opening it in, Ju- in Ju- uh, December. So it was, it was delayed. For, you know, typical restaurant stuff. Uh, but I was within, you know, a week of being in the hospital. I was, I was sitting there with my partner going over plans, design, and you know, like this was, again, High Street was a pure expression of of, of my perfect restaurant. So naturally, in New York, I'm going to want to be involved with that as well, right? My partner and I, you know, we 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 were really we're really good together when it comes to um, a lot of those aspects uh, of opening a restaurant and you know those roles and everything. And, you know, that that was part of the reason why I was able to get through it, too, is because I'm not just sitting there laying in a bed. You know, I, thankfully, I was a partner, not an employee. You know, so I was still able to maintain a, a certain level of income yeah. and everything as well. And, you know, which was which was really important going through that process. You know, the thing that people like people always say oh you still get your mind you know you can still speak all that and you're right like i I appreciate those things i really do i appreciate that i had 37 really good years on this earth Uh, i feel bad for the kids that get injured you Mm -hmm. know before they even have a chance to experience uh, to experience a tenth of what i experienced Mm -hmm. you know through my through my first 37 years on the earth however i always tell people and I'm not trying to say uh, I'm my, I'm not equating myself to Michelangelo or uh, or Da Vinci or any of uh, Van Gogh's or anything. I'm not. I'm not that good. Trust me. But imagine saying, "Oh, you can't paint, but you can still tell people to paint how you want it." It might be good. It might be pretty good after it's a while. Not the same. It's not the same. No. It's not the same. So I can only imagine. Like I can teach somebody how to cook. I teach people how to cook all the time, but I could teach them way better if I could just show them. I mean, I, I would I would expect anybody who went through such traumatic experience, who is facing like their, their, their getting their livelihood, their passion stripped from them, you must have been you must have gone to a deep place, dark place, man. I, can, I can't imagine anybody 
No, I mean, it. not only that, but my family life fell apart like really quickly. Was in the it aftermath. rough before this? It was. I mean, we were we were having our struggles. You know, I was a very career oriented, focused person. I mean, this industry. We all know that chefs don't make trouble. great husbands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we work late at night. You know, there's yeah. a lot of, you know, sort of the dark arts mm. that we practice. Um, you know that a lot of that go into what we do and is part of often our industry and staying out late and you know um you know a lot of like you know you have a kid like i wasn't i wasn't exactly being you know maybe there as much as i needed to be but i was also in the scent i was like i was just getting going yeah like you know what i mean like i had spent almost 20 years working this industry before i even became an executive chef Mm -hmm. a true executive chef I put a lot of time in. I did not. I did not make a move quickly. I put the time and the effort so that when I did have the opportunity to do it, I was ready. Doing I knew exactly yeah. what I needed to do, how to do it, and all that. So, and we were there. It was like you know, from 2012 to 2015. Like I said we went from one restaurant to four restaurants. Uh, I, you know, just recently came off Food and Wine Best New Chef. I recently it was James Beard. You know, like everything was lying up. Yeah. Beautifully. Life is looking like good. I told you, like yeah. I, it, things came almost too easily, mm. right? Because I put the time in. It wasn't because I didn't rush. I wasn't 28 saying, I want to open my own restaurant. And so that was, you know, the, the, the really the frustrating part. It still is the frustrating part. I like, can imagine. it still is. There's a whole, massive hole there still. I still toy with the idea of, okay, do I want to, like, really get back in there and do it. Uh, my role in our our company now is a little bit different. I'm more of an advisor. I've I've in 2019, I late 2019, I made a I made a um I took steps to kind of pull back a little bit, you know, after not being in the kitchen for so long and then trying to reinsert myself and you know, the energy levels that I had and the ability of what I could put in and you know, I really had to be honest with myself. And say, okay, maybe this, maybe I need to let go of some of those, those expectations with the, within the company. Allow some of the what other expectations. Sh- well, like running the company, yeah. being the being the visionary. I was the visionary for the company, culinary wise. Our our company is a food driven uh, company. Like I have a great partner in Ellen Yen, um, but we don't have we don't create theme restaurants. We don't have like oh we're going to create this like. You know, I'm not Steven Starr. I don't create a French brasserie and then a Budokan and then a you know a, a Japanese restaurant. Yeah. Like that's not who we are. we're 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 food and hospitality driven restaurants. Yeah. So we our food is our business card, mm. and of course, beautiful spaces, great atmosphere, and all that. But that's what this company was built on, and we live and die by that. So, so for me. Say okay, you know what? I got to relinquish some of this control. I want to give space for the other chefs who've worked for us for a while to kind of have their yeah. more independence and all that. Um, that's a hard pill to swallow because you know you built this company, you know, and it was it was you and it is you, and of course it's not just you. Like, but you're to go from the visionary and the person to make sure that everything's all the boxes are checked for success. To say, okay, you know what? I can't do it. I have to. I have to. I have to come to grips with what I can do. See, I think this is why I, I'm. You know, one of the reasons why I was really excited to you is because you you offer the super unique perspective 
Um, you live the super unique life within the restaurant industry. You're still with it. And I feel like, I mean, there's so many things because we rely so heavily on our, our hands, our senses, our, you know, our, our ability to, to do physical work and move to lead, quickly, to lead physically, yeah. right. To the lead through, follow me, follow my lead and how I do things. Uh, there's so many different things, not maybe not as extreme as becoming a quadriplegic, but maybe it's arthritis. Maybe it's a, some type of like neuro disease. Maybe sure. you go blind. Maybe there's so many things that can limit your career in this industry. So I think people listening to this, there's so many who might not have as an extreme experience as you, but the being, being getting, having your thing, your ability to work through your body is something that probably a lot of people can relate to. What's that transition? Like, what did you learn about how to, to lead through your will of just your presence? Yeah. I mean, I ooze confidence before I got hurt. Right. Even though I, I still struggle with my own self doubt and the things that are, you know, like the stuff that people don't know goes inside you. You know, uh, I had relied on therapy before I got injured. Uh, I thought it was always, a, when, I, when I came across it, I realized that it it helped me. You know, I always recommend anybody who's, you know, going through, you know, imposter syndrome or you just feel like your brain is too scattered or your anxiety and all that. Like there's, there's things out, there's resources out there that will help you. And I, I had relied on those even before, like, you know, a couple of years before my injury, three or four years, I started in that, started doing therapy because it, for me, it, it's, it's an opportunity to like reset your mind every week or every two weeks or every month, whatever you, how often you do it. It's like taking a scattered desk full of messy crap everywhere and you reorganize, put everything in the file drawers and you move on for the, you know, with, with your, with your next, um, you know, steps. And, you know, even though I had lost my ability and there was a point where I almost lost hope, mm. I almost did. I, where I, was this? How long? After? This was in New York city. Um, you know, the first 18 months after my injury, uh, we were in New York. We were on the Upper East Side. I felt very isolated. I was going through some family situations. Uh, and, you know, I almost lost hope. It wasn't for my kid. I don't know if I'd be here today. I think I would have taken my own life. Wow. It was that bad. And, you know, I tell him all the time, like, he saved my life. Do you, compared to where you were then and where you are today, where are you, would you say? Oh, it's a very different place. I mean, you know, like I said, I was oozing confidence for a long, and then, then all this hits, and I lose all my confidence. It just showed how fragile my mind was. Mm. You know, I relied on this on people giving me that feedback of, "Oh, it's so good." I mean, you only spent twenty years of your right. life building up to I mean, this. Chefs, we live and die by the uh, by the next review, complained. right? Yeah, we live and die by the next compliment or or you know, open table review. Like you know, so often we get wrapped up in those things and. You know, for me, what went away also is I think a lot of my ego died mm. as well. So I became a different leader. I had to start using different methods of leadership and challenging people. And, you know, since then I, I've, you know, I've really, I've, I think I'm a very, even though I don't use it in practice every day, if and when I'm ready, ready to sort of take that next step back into kitchens and restaurant, I have a whole new set of skills uh, when it comes to leadership, because I can't lead by example per se, yeah, but I still can. If you know what yeah, I mean, yeah, your your presence, your I values. can set people up for success. Your, I can articulate 
what a good culture is, how to how to make sure that that culture is maintained. Yeah. Um, and you know, allowing people to um, take more of a quicker leadership or ownership within their station or their their area's responsibility. You're you're forced to do what a lot of people struggle doing, right? Yeah. This is this show is all about transformation over time, and um, you went through an extreme physical transformation that forced you to that forced you to transform mentally. Yeah, um, and what you what, what happens when restaurants or restaurant tours scale their businesses eventually they whether they just can't physically be in all those places at once where you just you literally can't physically be in those roles that like you were but it forced you to get to that next level of restaurant touring where you're leading with your presence your wisdom your knowledge your 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 you're just your your you know what I'm trying to say right what I am yeah. saying so yeah. do you think that did you start seeing it that way where like I can still be my mind, I can still be my will, I can still be my values? Yeah, 100%. You know, and like I said, um, you know, having that different perspective now, it would definitely, it changes who how you, you can't help it for it to change you. I think for me as a chef, as, you know, business owner, all that, I look at success differently because it's about the people around me having success and not me. I've tasted success. I know it. I know that if my career uh, had, you know, if I was still an able-bodied person, I know that I would be in a good place. Yeah. Successful. You know, I would be successful by all measures. Um, you know, however, for me, this for me what I what makes me happy now gets me excited is teaching the next generation, right? Allowing my lessons that I've learned over the years to inspire the next generation. And if somebody gets inspired because, oh, look what Chef Eli went through, and now he's still doing what he's doing. He's doing these podcasts. He's got Chef Radio. He's got Delicious City. Uh, he's still very active in the community, you know, and for me, that's that's great. And podcasts for me isn't – podcast for me doesn't represent um, – who I am today necessarily what it does for, for me being a podcaster now somebody does that it was a almost life saving uh, epiphany that I had that I could do this I never considered myself to be somebody who sits down and talks with people on a microphone but what it did it gave me a purpose within the industry because mm-hmm. what hurt me the most was I felt like I had lost touch with the community and one thing about Philadelphia chefs and the Philadelphia – we didn't talk about the Philadelphia restaurant scene because it's amazing. I'm coming It's back really amazing. It's a really amazing place. And there's some great things happening here, and they have been for the last decade. And people know that. We're not San Francisco. We're not Chicago. We never will be. But Philadelphia has their own amazing restaurant culture and history here. And for me, though, losing touch with my comrades, like, right, whether you see them at events that you do together or – you're doing collaboration dinners, like that all went away, like yeah. poof. Yeah, that's, that's your, your juice. Network. Yeah. That's your juice, Yeah, right? So for me, stumbling upon this idea of doing a podcast and then seeing how it reconnected me to these individuals. And not only reconnected you, but now you have opportunity for that you can add value to these individuals. By right, like value. I could never have seen the, the, uh, the ancillary values that would come along with doing this. But what it's done, it has allowed me to take my lessons now and be able to vocalize those 
to the next generation. Yes. So what's what's unique? I can relate with a lot of what you're saying right now. So when I started my podcast, I was like, I can't work in the restaurant industry because I have crippling debt, right? And that's yes. why I got away from yes. it. But there was a need. I recognized, I saw a need that the industry, the industry w- didn't have a resource where people were just openly talking, sharing information, sharing knowledge, inspiring each other. There was a, oh, a gap a massive gap where I could still be a part of an industry that I love because I love the people in this industry. And I saw that as an opportunity to be a part of an industry that I love. But also furthermore, over time, as I was doing my podcast, I'm like, I still might be able to be a restaurant tour sometime. I'm not going to lie. I kind of got scared straight from wanting to open a restaurant after talking to thousands. Of yeah. Bar, yeah. Nearly a thousand. But you're probably inspired to the same time. Yeah. But I also recognize that I bring something to the table yeah. that I might still be a part of a restaurant group someday, but I'm not going to be the executive chef. Yeah. I'm not going to be the director of operations. I'm not going to, I could potentially be some type of CEO. Right. Create opportunity for other people. Right. Use my platform to recruit talent, sure. to recruit people, and to connect them with you know. Really, I think what a CEO in the restaurant industry is is a visionary, and it's somebody who sees the the big picture and puts people in verticals. And you can st- you can use a podcast. It's a great tool to network, to leverage, to get information, and to you know, it's another channel of revenue for your restaurant group. So I think well, it's know, also knowledge you you're getting that from from a unique perspective. Exactly. So as a CEO or whatever, I don't know what you're, you're a partner in your restaurant group today. Yeah, just a partner. Yep. Yeah, but I, I see my asset like this podcast that I created as being a huge asset to an executive chef or to mm-hmm. a director of operations, mm-hmm. um, where I can say, hey, here's what I can bring to the table. I can bring an audience of thousands of passionate restaurant people. I can bring access to experts and specialists who are willing to give me their knowledge and to coach me because they know that through coaching me, they're going to get exposure. So like there's the world is a complex dynamic beast. Yeah. And if you, you can take one step to the left or one step to the right and see a whole new perspective. And I think that this experience has forced you to see a whole new perspective. So what is that perspective? What is your vision for yourself for the future? Right. What what excites you today? Well, what podcast is, it's a medium to disseminate information, right? The old adage, when one teaches to learn, meaning not only does the person you're teaching learn, but the teacher learns because so often when you have to articulate a skill, whether it's learning how to butcher, or teaching somebody how to butcher fish, teaching somebody how to write a recipe, whatever it is, um, teaching somebody how to tourne uh, a vegetable, you're learning as well, right? You're you're learning at a deeper level as you teach. With something like a podcast goes, if somebody's here for knowledge, it's not just entertainment. Of course, it's inter- it has to be entertaining. Uh, otherwise, people aren't going to listen. However, if now when one teaches, for example, you or myself, when we go on air or we publish a podcast, many people are learning. And that's the beautiful thing about it. And that's the, the far-reaching impact. You know how it is. You'll meet somebody like, yo, I love your podcast. I've learned so much about it. You don't know them. They know you. Yeah. You know what I mean? But that's that's the beauty, that's the beauty about it. You go down the streets. was like, oh, Chef Eli. Yeah. I'm like, did you work for me at one point? Like, are we cool? They're like, no, no, no. I got it. I was on the I, elevator in New York last or this week, uh-huh. and um, somebody said, "Eric, 
and I was wearing my restaurant unstoppable yeah, shirt. My yeah, hat. I literally said, "Are you fucking busting my balls right now?" Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. I was like, "Really?" Like, but yeah, I know what you're saying. Like it. So, what, but it, but, but but it's but it's a really. I get the same level of um, satisfaction out of teaching a sous chef how to run or be a good chef, right? That's what you're doing. You're, as I do somebody saying who I don't even know, be like, I really appreciate what you're doing because I learned X, Y, or Z where I've become this, where I was that. And, you know, like it changed my perspective. It changed my thought process. That's, it's a similar level of satisfaction. Uh, and it's allowed me to be more content where I am today. Even though I can't walk, I'm still dependent on other people to help me to get through my day. I have medications I have to take to survive. It still has allowed me to feel normal. And when you get injured, all you do is want to feel normal again. Like everybody's like, "Oh, I don't want to be normal. I want to be, I want to be extra normal. I want to be extraordinary." Like what I would give just to be normal again in the same sense, like physical abilities wise, right? You're trying to get back to a place that you're familiar with. Yeah. Now I can be more independent. I don't need somebody around me 24 seven. Like, you know, I, I can do things on my own. Yeah. However, there's still a limitation to that and I have to accept that. But I can still teach. Can I be honest with you? When I first saw that your podcast was a thing, I think I was in Texas. I remember thinking to myself, how the fuck am I supposed to compete with this guy? <laughs> Cause like you have such an inspiring story. You know what I mean? And, and I mean, for you to, to get to where you were, where you could, you know, recover and the experience you had. And, and I was like, I'm just Eric Cacciatore from East Buck. Yeah, but dude, you're Manchin. the OG though. <laughs> you know, like, so you inspired me, man. And when, and I was like, I remember thinking, I was like, this guy's going to take over. Like he's the <laughs> real deal, you know? And, and I'm, I think people just, the compassion that you must get, I feel like, just because of people must just want to. I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just must. There, there must. Like, how do I compete with that? Like, yeah, is that a weird thing to admit out loud. I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I mean, people always say you're an inspiration, but it's hard to. It's like, you don't ever be like. You're never like. Oh, what do you want to be in your when you grow up? I want to be an inspiration. Because yeah. a lot of times, inspiration means like you went through some shit that nobody else wants to go through. I mean, I just got into some debt. You know, <laughs> like, you know, you get yeah, so exactly. much. You know what I mean? You know, like. Just because you're an inspiration doesn't mean it was for the right reasons, you know, the, at least ones that you went through, uh, yeah. that you hope to go through. However, if I'm able to allow, to give somebody a different perspective, because I always say perspective is yeah. everything. So often, like we, in this day and age in such a such a divided country, you know, everybody's in their own sort of uh, um, echo chamber. You know, what they want to hear, they read what they want, they hear what they want, they watch what they want to help solidify their position. But if you lose perspective, you're not helping anybody. You know what I mean? Like, perspective is everything. Don't lose perspective throughout your day. Make sure you take time to be like, okay, what's important? Don't forget what's important in life. You know, health, happiness, stability, those are important elements. Those, Those allow you to take the next step, hmm. right? You mentioned the pyramid, right? Like, like you have to have certain things in order to get to the next step, to yeah. see you come, you're the true you come out into fruition. Um, but 
don't forget about those because yeah. if you do, it can come it can come crumbling down very quickly. I'm looking at the time, dude. We gotta start wrapping things yeah, up. It's almost two o'clock already. And time flies. This might so be your long. longest podcast it, ever. It might be, man. But um, you had a great story. I love talking to you. Um, and I wanted the story to come out. Uh, but we do have to wrap, and I wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. And I know that you have a massive network. So uh, who do you respect and admire? Not necessarily as a chef and their chef ability, but as an individual, as a restaurateur, as somebody who's just knowledgeable and just really impressive with their their busy their business savviness or a unique perspective. Who do you respect and admire? Make a list if you have to. Uh, yeah, my business partner's great. I think she's she has so much tenacity, more than I do. I mean, for her to steer the company through what it has over the last couple of years, uh, to what it is, and and seeing her her sort of value rise within the industry is a huge one. So Ellen Yin, uh, definitely up there. Mark Ladner, who's a mentor for me, a uh, very inspiring man who was you know at Del Posto. He's behind the scenes. He would Mario Batali would never have been Mario Batali without Mark Ladner. He was his Robin to his Batman, and he's a guy who uh, just gave me a different perspective. And I think his his humbleness, uh, his desire never to be this the what this focal point, uh, the attention uh, seeker. Uh, and just the amount, see what his impact was at large on so many different people. Uh, a big one, um, you know, business leaders out there. I think there's a lot of them you can pull from. Uh, I love, you know, um, you know, looking at other industries or other people for inspiration. Um, Go for it. No, I think like even just reading by like if you read something by like Seam, Seal Team Six, yeah, or like Danny Meyer or. You know, who's a hospitality genius in, in the industry. Um, but just looking at how other organizations organize themselves. Well, I was going to ask you, yeah, like, are there any movers and shakers in Philadelphia who are challenging the status quo, who aren't doing things? Like you mentioned, we were handed a broken system. Uh, I would say the business model was broken too, where now you're seeing people just come out of the left field with these different business structures and models. Right. Some of that we're seeing now is these upstart chefs. Uh, it's almost like a supper club atmosphere they're doing. They're opening on the days of the week they want. Uh, they're living on their terms. Uh, they're doing, you know, they make enough to survive. Who comes to mind? Uh, Amanda Schulman at her place. Uh, we have this young lady. Uh, uh, she's opened up Roxanne. What's her name? Um, God, I hate doing this. Amanda one. Schulman? Amanda Schulman at her place. In uh, uh, Roxanne? Uh, Alexander Holt from a uh, new restaurant opening up Roxanne. Same thing, the supper club idea. You know, it's it's a way for these chefs to get their name out there, start developing their their uh, reputations. Um, you know, we see uh, there's a great chef. Uh, her name is uh, Nook Sinternanon. Uh She's uh, Thai, and she opened up uh, Kalia, um, which is she's got you know James Beard finalist this last year. She didn't win the award, uh, but she should have. Uh, but you know, she's doing some great things with Thai food that Beautiful. is not. American style Thai, it's Thai Thai food. So um, there's a lot of great stuff. By the way, man. Uh, So Ellen, Mark, Amanda, Alexandra, Nook, look out! I'm coming after you. I I need to come back to Philly, man. And when that day comes, I would love to reconnect with you. I would love to find out who else you think we should have on the show. Absolutely. Uh, Maybe we can collaborate on some more YouTube content or whatever. That'd be great, right? I hope this is the uh, not the last time we we. So that was a great town. Lot to explore. Um, the culture is rich, deep, and people love the city. Yeah, and who? And if we listen today, and we, we this is our first time hearing the name Eli Culp, what's the best way to connect and follow you, and to maybe uh, subscribe to your podcast? 
Yeah, so of course, uh, Chef Radio Podcast, uh, if you're if you're just interested in, in the industry, the ins and outs of it, how chefs speak, talk, whatever, definitely look up that one. If you're interested in the Philadelphia food scene, uh, check out Delicious City uh, Podcast. So I have Chef Radio Podcast and Delicious City Podcast. Uh, also, Instagram, Eli Culp, very easy to find me. And of course, all of our uh, podcasts are on Instagram as well. Uh, come to the restaurants if you want to see what our industry is about. Um, High Street Hospitality Group. I'm, I'm coming to visit next time. I'm yeah, coming. man. High Street Hospitality Group. Sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm bummed that I'm bummed that we couldn't sit down and have a we'll, meal. We'll be but, back. Yeah, we'll be back. High Street Hospitality Group. Com. Is it? Yeah. All right. Beautiful. And um, this is episode, I believe. I don't know. Just listen to the closing thoughts and the, uh, the episode number at the beginning. We'll link to any of the tools. I don't think we mentioned any tools, but we'll, we'll link to how to connect with Chef Eli Culp over there. Um, and I just want to say, man, um, you're truly an inspiration. Your mindset, everything about you is just truly unstoppable. Awesome, man. Cheers. Thank Cheers. You. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Chef Eli Culp, for just being an inspiration and choosing to show up and to overcome these adversities you've been faced with. I don't, I don't know if everybody would be so willing to do that. And I, you're truly an inspiration. Thank you so much. And if you're enjoying this podcast and you want more episodes just like it, we need your support. There's a ton of ways you can support the show. You can come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. I really do think that's the best win-win way to support the show. For a dollar a day, you get access to my network. The people I would be going to tomorrow if I was opening a restaurant. And really what I'm trying to do is just to be a connector. I don't want to be the guy that has all the answers, but I know a lot of great men and women that have a lot of knowledge in specific verticals. And if you reach out to me, if you join the conversation, I'm happy to put you in the same room with them digitally to answer any questions you might have. Uh, And this is really what we're trying to do. We're trying to close the knowledge gap. We're trying to transform the industry by offering different perspective and making information and knowledge available to everyone, no matter who you are. And I think $1 a day is in reach for most people. So come hang out at restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. You can also support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links and you can share this podcast with everyone and anyone you know aspiring to be great in the restaurant industry. And thank you in advance. Uh, As you're listening to this, we are in Dallas, Texas. So we're going to be in Dallas for this week. I think um, the next trip we have planned, it's looking like we're going to be heading to Miami, Florida in February. And then March, we're headed to Charleston. So we're looking for leads. If you're in those areas or if you if you know of who's doing it right, who's really challenging the status quo, who's who's leading the way, please put them on our radar. And I can't say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who helped make Restaurant Unstoppable possible. Thank you to Jared Parisi at Sumadre Podcast for his podcast editing and copywriting. And thank you to Sam Hall over at SavInSam.com for getting on the road with me, carrying around a video camera, putting it on me, capturing all of what we're doing behind the scenes and for all of your social media work. It takes a team. It takes an army. It takes a village. We're building one here at Restaurant Stoppable, and I'm so grateful for you guys. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.